Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This episode has some new segments, including the airing of grievances in which I briefly complain about stuff. Then we have feats of strength in which we highlight some very impressive recent lifts and also pay tribute to a legend that passed away last week. In the main part of today's show, we have a Coach's Corner segment about metabolic adaptations to weight loss, followed by Question of the Day, which is a new segment in which Greg and I discuss things that we've changed our minds about throughout our careers. Plus, if you only come here for the food content, Greg is going to teach us how to make some stew. Finally, we interview Lee Peel, who tells us about the early days of the evidence-based fitness movement, weight loss, and metabolic adaptation. As always, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. And before we get into the content today, um, sometimes people make mistakes. When you make a mistake, you got to own up. Uh, In the last episode, I failed to introduce Greg as my temporary co-host. And there have been a lot of rumors swirling on the internet that maybe um, he's been offered a full-time position. I just want to nip those in the bud and kind of address those head on. That was a mistake on my end. I should have been more clear. Um, Greg is certainly not uh, not at all uh, what you'd consider a permanent co-host. Uh, so hopefully those rumors, you know, we'll just put an end to those. Um, and for now, we're going to keep them temporary. We're doing the best with what we've got. So with, with, with that being said, I am lobbying to be a, a full-time co-host. So if you would be interested in me staying on as the co-host of the Stronger by Science podcast, uh, it would behoove everyone listening to this to shoot Eric a message on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, Please turn all of his inboxes, wherever you may find them, into a complete hellhole, showing overwhelming support uh, for keeping me on the show. Actually, probably a better way to do that would be go wherever you get your podcast, make sure you like it, leave a review... And in the review, you, you can let us know who the, the permanent host should be. I think Dwayne Johnson would be a very good option, but he doesn't seem to answer my emails. He's I think he's been on vacation. He got married recently, so when he gets back, we'll see. Oh, good for him. Yeah, we're all very happy for him. So I, I haven't seen video of that wedding, but if her wedding vows didn't include the line, you are my rock, that marriage should be annulled. I think there, there's got to be some kind of legal precedent by which it'd be completely invalid from the start. One would hope. Yeah. All right, Dwayne, um, check your email. Talk to you soon. Congratulations. Okay, so before we get into the feats of strength, I have a segment that I'm calling the airing of grievances <laughs> um, that is absolutely stolen from Seinfeld. So here's the thing. So Greg is, he'll never admit this, but he's one of the hardest working people I know. During his master's degree, he was a full-time student. He was running a study. He was running two businesses. He didn't have a lot of time to train. And so, you know, Greg, if you follow him on Instagram, you know he's back in the gym lately. And he's essentially back to PR strength levels. You low bar squatted, what, like 600 for five the other day? 605 for five. 605 for five, which I believe is like... That is a PR? Yes, 600 was my old PR. Right. So so Greg, in a matter of weeks, is like back and ready to go. And, and when I say he was like, took some time off training, I mean, he did not see the inside of a gym for, you, you maybe worked out four times over like a 12-month span, maybe? 
Yeah, I think I got nine training sessions in over two years. Right. So that's not a high... In the spectrum of training frequencies, that's toward the lower end. Correct, I think you yeah. would agree. <laughs> I think <laughs> there are some people who train nine times in a week. Um, so you hit that in a two-year stretch, which is... Uh, that's low frequency. <laughs> now, for me, like... You know, I, I've been training around a hip thing, which we all know. Uh, I've got a hip thing and then obviously finishing the PhD and then starting to work with mass and stronger by science. I've had some professional stuff to check off my to-do list. But, you know, recently I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into the power lifts, get my squat, deadlift and bench right. But that was with really consistent training over the last few years. Um, and I am so far away from my PRs. <laughs> so, so like t to give an example, uh, the other day I put 73% of my squat best on the bar completely wrecked my back catastrophically. And I'm still not all right. Like you saw me try to tie my shoes an hour ago. Tying my shoes is off the table right now. Yeah. And the thing that's most frustrating is not just that you're strong already, <laughs> but you wrecked your back like the first week you got back into it to the extent that one of our episodes, I won't say which, you literally recorded it from bed, laying down. Yeah, I, I couldn't sit up. We, we couldn't have you sit for an hour. So, well, one important thing to note is my back is, um, it will go from being really bad to just fine pretty quickly. So I don't know exactly what is going on structurally. But I kind of think that they're, I think it's like generally kind of okay. But if something bad happens, like a nerve gets impinged. And as soon as everything just relaxes back there, everything's back to normal. So that actually happened prior to the last meet that I did. Um, I slipped on some ice and landed awkwardly and hurt my back. And like three days out from the meet, I couldn't walk. And then on meet day, it was still very painful, but I was somewhat functional, um, still put together a, a decent total, um, way off what I was planning on, but I mean, still squatted like 650, uh, I mean, didn't affect bench and I pulled what I needed to, to win my class. It was like 560, give or take, um, and then, <laughs> but like, so I was still way off my best. Uh, and in considerable pain. And then two days after that, I pulled a trap bar deadlift PR. Um, and everything was completely fine. So it, it's not like... My back issues are like chronic issues. But it, it's chronically not a big deal at all most of the time. And then occasionally a very big deal for like three or four days. And then fine. Yeah. It's just to me, it's like... I didn't take anywhere near the layoff you did. I'm still infinite. Like, I can't even see PR territory <laughs> from where I'm at. And the fact that you, like, wrecked your back to the extent, like, you were in bad shape. And you're already fine. And my back, when it happened, was not that big of a deal. There was never a day where I, like, couldn't sit. But it just isn't getting any better. And so I'm just generally upset, frustrated, mad, and jealous. Okay, so let's move on to feats of strength. Uh, yeah, so um, 
several cool things happened this week, uh, or not just this week, but just kind of recently. So Kaylor Woolham uh, recently deadlifted 400 kilos conventional. He So Kaylor has the deadlift world record in the 110 kilo, 242 pound class if memory serves. And it's like, should have looked it up before we started recording, but it's something like 420, 430 uh, pounds, like somewhere in the low to mid 900s. And the the reason I wanted to point this out is Kaler gets a decent amount of hate for his sumo deadlifts because if if you wanted to build someone who was perfectly built for the deadlift, they'd look a fair amount like Kaler Woolham. And especially with the sumo stance, a lot of people get bent out of shape about sumo and they're like, ah, dude, dude's not even that strong. Like he just has long arms and the cheaty sumo stance and blah, blah, blah. But like, if you deadlift 400 kilos, which is 880 pounds conventional, like you're a strong fucking dude. And this is something you see with really good sumo deadlifters for the most part. So I, I think I think people get upset when they see a really good, efficient sumo deadlift because a good sumo deadlifter makes the sumo deadlift look so easy. Um, and people see that, and if they aren't built as well for the sumo deadlift, maybe they don't have the hip mobility for it. They see it and they just think, man, if I was built like that person, I could sumo deadlift an infinite amount. Um, but I can't think of a really good sumo deadlifter who isn't all also quite strong conventional. Like, Kaler wouldn't be the world record holder in his weight class if he pulled conventional, but he'd still pull 400 kilos, which is a ton of weight. Like, most most really good sumo deadlifters can still pull at least 90% of their best sumo deadlift conventional. Um, so yeah, big milestone for him. Really good lift. Wanted to put that on, on the list. Um... <laughs> so on the subject of someone who is a very good, very efficient sumo deadlifter, uh, Yu Yu Rin recently posted a video uh, of himself deadlifting 815 pounds. Uh, he is an 83 kilo lifter, um, I believe competing in IPF affiliates. And he has the the record in that weight class, which is 340 kilos, which is like 749 pounds. So so he's, you know, training on a gym bar with standard plates with the thinner kilo plates and uh IPF competition bar. Who knows what that 815 will translate to, but for a lifter that size, 83 kilos, uh deadlifting 815, also he makes it look like a joke. Um, and recently he also posted a video pulling 775 for a triple. So in, when I talk about sumo perfection, like Jesus Christ, his sumo deadlift looks incredible. Um, so that's number two. Number three is I'm thinking at USAPL nationals this year, the 83 kilo squat record for the men is going to get absolutely destroyed. So the current record um, is held by Russell O'Ream. I believe it's 690 pounds, which is a large number of kilograms. 
uh, like 315, give or take. Um, so anyway, like that was at Worlds last year, and that was a very, very challenging looking lift. So Russell in the gym recently squatted 696 and made it look super easy. Um, so over his current world record, made it look like an empty bar. Also squatted 675 for a triple. Um, also looked fairly comfortable. So he looks like he's primed to break his own record. The sleeper in that class, though, uh, need to give a shout out to my boy Jamar Royster. Um, trains at Spider Strength Gym, same place I work out. And so in like the two years that I was out of the sport in grad school, I didn't realize how fucking strong Jamar got. Um, so <laughs> the last meet I did was Jamar's first powerlifting meet. And he had a background in bodybuilding before that. Like he, you, you see the guy and like, you know, he's strong. But it was also somewhat obvious that he wasn't tremendously comfortable with powerlifting yet. Like, his technique was good, but he didn't quite look comfortable hitting one rep maxes yet, which is pretty standard for people who who make the switch to powerlifting. But, I mean, even then, he was competing at 181, and I think he, he squatted either, like, mid to high fives or maybe low sixes. So he obviously had the talent for it. Um... And so <laughs> I get out of school, move back to Raleigh, see Jamar, and holy shit, this kid's gotten strong. Um, recently, he Paul squatted 639 for a triple and squatted without a pause 672 for a double. So I think Russell still squats more than him, but I also think Jamar, one, is going to give him a run for his money. Like, don't sleep on him. Dude is... Dude is a sleeper pick in that class. Um, but also, it, it, it's not going to surprise me if there's multiple people who squat 700 plus at 83 kilos at USAPL Nationals this year, which will just be insane. And then my my last feat of strength for the day, uh, I, I think this happened maybe like three or four weeks ago, but I just recently heard about it. So um, I'm going to butcher the last name, but Lasha Talakadza, uh, Georgian weightlifter, super heavy, currently the best super heavyweight weightlifter in the world and arguably the greatest of all time. Um, so inarguably, based on the numbers he's actually put up, he has the highest competition total in weightlifting history. The reason it's arguable is he hasn't been at the top for that long, so he hasn't taken down as many world championships and Olympic medals as, as some of the past greats. But, uh, I recently saw a video of him snatching 221 kilos, which is, uh, that's like 486 pounds, I believe. Um, and I mean like a, a max snatch never looks hard. Like it doesn't look like a max deadlift, but can't grind a snatch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, just looking at it, like, it looks like he has more in the tank. Uh, like, oftentimes a max snatch or clean and jerk will still maybe look a little bit shaky, but, God, he, he made it look like a joke. Um, and on the same post of him snatching 221, uh, Gregor from Hook Grip also said that there's a video floating around that he hasn't posted yet 
of Lasha clean and jerking 267, which is, I believe, 590 pounds. And, like, so one of the things that makes me a little upset about weightlifting currently is just how much better Lasha is than every other super heavy because he he doesn't have to hit his max numbers to win competitions anymore. Um, the class just isn't as deep as it used to be. And like, I'm pretty sure he won worlds last year by like 24 kilos or something crazy like that. So I don't know if we're ever going to have occasion to see Lasha have to push himself in competition or whether he's just going to keep breaking his own total record by one kilo at a time. But I mean, if, if he went 221, 267 in the same competition, that would just be stupid. Um, and like, I think everyone loves him just because if you don't know who this guy is, just search Lasha and then T-A-L and the rest of his name should pop up so you don't have to worry about spelling it. Um, and just like look at the guy and how much joy he lives with. He just looks like a huge, generally jolly bear of a man uh, and probably the strongest weightlifter who's ever lived. So uh, I, I think that does it for my feats of strength for the week. Yep, I'm going to swoop in with one. As we've had bodybuilders on feats of strength before. We had Dexter Jackson. Um, we've also used this segment to um, to memorialize uh, strength athletes that have passed. And unfortunately, about an hour before we started recording, we just heard that, uh, unfortunately, Franco Colombo has passed away. So I, I believe he was 78 um, Franco Colombo, absolute legend. He's another one of those guys that whenever you saw him pictures, videos, he just looked like he was loving it. You know what I mean? He seemed like a very joyful, really happy dude who just loved everything about the world of iron, you know? So everybody knows him obviously as a bodybuilding legend. I believe he won both the Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia titles, uh, at least in his class. But you know, back then they would have like the weight cutoffs or height cutoffs, depending on which organization. This is, I mean, the infancy of bodybuilding, really, as a, in terms of like the modern competitions that you see. So things have changed a lot in bodybuilding. But whenever there was a short class or a kind of a lower weight cutoff, it was always Franco. And whenever they had the taller weight class or the heavier, it was Arnold, you know. So if you don't know their background, they were great friends. Um, they really did. It's hard to overstate how much attention and value they brought to the bodybuilding world. You know, they were kind of the the face of it. Um, as I was mentioning, though, Franco, not, not just a bodybuilder, really did just about everything you'd hope to do in the strength world. Um, you know, he, he did uh, 1977, did the World's Strongest Man competition. Uh it was known to be a very good lifter in the powerlifting realm of things. So um, this is based on Wikipedia numbers. I'm not like a strength historian by any means, but uh, best bench press was listed as 525, best squat is 655, best deadlift as 750. I, so I, I didn't know about the bench and squat, but that the deadlift is pretty well documented. Yeah, and there's apparently rumors that in training he had deadlifted over 780 don't know if that's verified or not. I mean, dude, stage weight was 185, right? Yep. 
Yeah. So those lifts were probably done at somewhere in the vicinity of 200 pounds. Probably, yeah. Which, I mean, those... Because you've never seen him not looking damn lean. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, a deadlift in the mid to high sevens at 200, I mean, that still holds up really well today. Yeah. And apparently he was also an amateur boxing champ back in Italy. So, like, he was just kind of like one of those guys that, like, if it involved being strong or punching a dude or (laughs) anything within the realm, (laughs) it's like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Uh, but but yeah, he certainly is is one of the legends, one of the greats. Uh, rest in peace, Franco. Thanks for everything you did for the strength world in general. And I think that does it for the segment. All right, so now we're going to move on to a segment called Coach's Corner. And normally, Greg uses this as a platform to talk about some stupid stuff about weightlifting, <laughs> or how to be strong, or whatever. But this week, I'm going to talk about nutrition and metabolism, which is what people really like. So because of some of the work I've done in the past, some of the articles I've written, I get a lot of messages on the internet about metabolic adaptation. So basically the whole the whole mess of hormonal changes and changes in energy expenditure that happen when you start reducing your caloric intake and losing weight. And so on one hand, I definitely empathize with it because I've been there. And it's weird when you start losing a lot of weight for the first time. Uh, you can kind of feel that your hormones are changing and you feel different. And it's a little bit troubling at first because you don't feel great. And you also notice that your caloric intake is starting to get really low. And you, you start to worry a little bit, like, how low is this going to have to get? But sometimes when I get these messages... Um, even though I know where they're coming from and I empathize with them, I kind of feel like I'm in the hull of a ship and the year 1690 and I'm the doctor and they're asking me like, is it scurvy? Like (laughs) we don't know. We don't really know what it is or what to do about it, but it's definitely going to be terrible and you're probably going to die. Like it's treated like this binary thing. Like have I caught the metabolic adaptation? And if so, am I screwed? And people want to know like, Am I screwed? Is it normal for my calories to be this low? And how low are they going to have to get for me to actually get as lean as I want to be? And the answer is like, I don't really know because there's a lot of variability to consider. But I think the best way to illustrate the point is with some numbers. So using just like basic predictive equations, I kind of jotted down some numbers that were similar to a person my size. And, you know, in the off season to maintain my my body weight, just purely based on predictive equations with a pretty conservative activity factor. It might be like 2630, you know, 2630 calories a day. But what a lot of people fail to notice or recognize is metabolic adaptation happens in both directions. And I wrote about this many years ago with Eric Helms before we had a falling out and started to dislike (laughs) each other a lot. Uh, But Back then, he was doing good stuff. Now he's a joke. But we wrote about this, and we're like, based on the literature, it's not atypical when you're like kind of bulking. You can inflate your your normal energy expenditure throughout the day by about ten percent, just as a function of overeating. Like, so when you're in a surplus, your your metabolic rate, your total energy expenditure tends to ramp up a little bit, sometimes up to ten percent. And so what that means is instead of eating 2630, now you're talking more close to 2900 calories a day. 
And so then, you know, you go through all this weight loss. For me, on a prep, I'll lose about 40 pounds, give or take. And at that point, a a predictive equation would put me at like 2,300 calories. But metabolic adaptation works the other direction as well. So if I'm like 15% below that, now I've gone to like 1945. And that's for maintenance, correct? For maintenance, yeah. Yeah. And so what we're talking about there is the swing that I'm noticing on my end is I used to eat like 2,900 and now I'm under 2,000 to maintain. Then I apply a, a deficit, which will probably be 300, 600 calories a day. All of a sudden, as an adult man, I'm eating like 1,450 calories a day. And I used to eat like close to 3,000 a day. And so sometimes you look at those numbers and you think something is going horribly wrong here. But in reality, all we have to do is factor in a little bit of variability, a little bit of shifting in either direction, whether you're bulking or cutting. And these numbers get a lot less scary. You know, these are the reason I write about metabolic adaptation a lot is because it's important to plan for. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm maintaining at 3,000 calories. I'll just cut 500 calories and cruise on into competition. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I'll have to drop another 200 later. It's almost like. A lot of people notice that there's almost a dead zone when it comes to the calories they can maintain on Mm -hmm. where, you know, if you try to go into a really conservative deficit and maybe cut your calories by a hundred a day, just nothing happens. Yeah. Or same thing if you go into like a really small surplus. So there is, there is like a, a, I think people, I think people use the word only a lot when they uh, implying that something is is negligible when it actually isn't so when the whole thing about starvation mode was huge back in the day and people were like oh if we look at the minnesota starvation experiment we see that uh excessive metabolic adaptation was only another 15 percent but the thing is when that's 15 percent from you know, a baseline that was already used to be higher because you used to be bigger. You're talking about a lot of calories there. Right. And so like to to put those numbers into context, if I purely looked at what should my intake have been to maintain at my starting weight versus my ending weight with none of those adaptations mixed in, that's a difference based on the estimation equations of like 342 calories. But when you build in the 10% upward from bulking and the 15% downward from the more classical metabolic adaptation, that gap of 342 becomes a total gap of 948. That's a lot. That's a big number. And so that's kind of why I like to write about metabolic adaptation. It's not something to be afraid of. It's certainly not insurmountable. There are ways around it. Um, and it's better to plan for it than to be blindsided by it. But this is why people get into these situations where they're like, I absolutely cannot explain this discrepancy in my weight loss. And it's like, well, we've failed to budget in these pretty sizable fluctuations in both directions. Mm -hmm. And another thing to keep in mind that makes it even more challenging is there's been researchers have estimated that two individuals, the same body size, their non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just based on the lifestyle they live, can vary by up to 2,000 calories per day. Whew. Now, that's extreme. That's like the yeah. maximal kind of range. But it makes it, when you consider all these variations in overfeeding and underfeeding, 
and kind of natural variation in resting metabolic rate and typical variation in non-exercise activity. And, and the fact that non-exercise activity tends to go up in a surplus and down in a deficit. Right. But when, when you consider all those sources of variability, when you look at someone else on Instagram and you say, why are they losing weight at 1600 calories and I'm not? It really highlights how silly of a practice that is. Like the idea that you can just kind of eyeball it and be like, well, if they diet on that, then I should be able to lose weight on that. Yeah. So th there's a lot of variability. And in episode 14, uh, in the interview portion, we've got Brandon Roberts on, and he just did a competition like last week. And I asked him, I'm always curious, like, how bad did it get here? You know, <laughs> like, I never want to ask like, hey, how's training? I'm always like, how, how shitty has this gotten? And at his lowest days on his diet, he said he was around 1,300 calories. Ooh, buddy. Brandon's not a small guy. Yeah. And so, like, every now and then I'll get a message from somebody who's, like, 40 pounds lighter or 30 pounds lighter than Brandon. They're like, is it possible I'll have to go under 1,500 calories? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it's it's not great, but that's, that's the way it goes. I mean, unless you're just doing a tremendous amount of cardio. Right, which I would argue is a much less pleasant experience. You'd, you'd rather just cut the calories. I, I wonder how many people do a bunch of cardio just so they can like flex about how many calories they're eating on Instagram. Hopefully none, but probably a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's kind of what, what I think. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit my bias is that I'm extremely anti-cardio as a fat loss mechanism. Um, I'm about as extreme as you get on that mm -hmm. spectrum. But um, in any case, the reason I bring this up if you're someone who is worried about metabolic adaptation and you're wondering, do I have it? The more, the more valid question based on the research is not, do you have it? But to what magnitude are you experiencing it? Mm -hmm. This is a thing that happens on a spectrum. Some people are, are more responsive to it than others. Um, and more importantly, these things are all quantifiable. There are no mysteries here. There are reasons for these changes that can be troubleshot. You know, mm -hmm. you can get with somebody who has an understanding of this literature and start to figure out how you can start to make this a more tolerable experience, how to mitigate some of these things. Um, but yeah, the important thing is it's nothing to be worried about or scared about. It is something to plan for. It can certainly be overcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not scurvy. It's not like all your teeth are going to fall out and then we're just going to push you overboard. Mm -hmm. Everything's cool. But um, yeah, that's the, probably the, the most common question I get is like people really panicked about it. And it, it's tough because when you write in and, and talk about it a lot, people are like, well, you're the one who told me to worry about it. And it's like, no, I told you to consider it, but not to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've got a special part two to this week's Coach's Corner segment, and I'm going to let Greg take it away. Yeah, so uh, oftentimes in Coach's Corner, we'll tell you what is a good idea to do or a good idea to at least try, but I actually want to make you aware of something that you very much should not do and probably should not try. I was recently reminded of this just earlier today, um, and every time I'm reminded of it, I think it doesn't fully stick because of how outrageous it is. And so the thing I'm going to recommend you not do 
is collect your urine and inject it into yourself. So you may ask and say, hey, why why would that even be a thing that would come to mind in the first place? And <laughs> so uh, f- famous or potentially infamous biohacker Dave Asprey of, of Bulletproof Exec fame wrote an article for his blog back in 2017 about um, <laughs> collecting your own urine and injecting it into yourself as a way to treat allergies. And what reminded me of it is <laughs> someone messaged me on Instagram and sent me the article and said, hey, Greg, uh, this doesn't seem right. Do you have any insight? <laughs> and I said, yeah, don't do it, man. Like, <laughs> so the... Well, you know, it, it's a controversial approach in the medical field, I think. Yeah, so so my favorite line of this article is, urine injection therapy is controversial in the medicine in the medis, in the medical world, which like no it's not. I kind of controversial implies that there are two sides of the discussion to have a controversy. I'm pretty sure it's a very uncontroversial no in the medical world. Uh, and then the next sentence, many people say it's nonsense. Sidebar, yes, of course they fucking do. Sentence continues, and there are few parentheses, if any, studies on it. And there are no links attached to that sentence. Like, the parenthetical, if any, is doing very heavy lifting in that sentence. So, um, anyway. But it does highlight the fact that the current medical literature is an incomplete literature. We haven't turned over (laughs) all the rocks technically true but i don't know how relevant that is in this case uh but yeah so just to kind of make a somewhat larger point one of the things that people ask me to do the most frequently either on this podcast or on the website is to do like quote unquote debunking work um and generally that's not what i'm about um, I, I think that, I don't know, I think people oftentimes are just like too aggressive with debunking, don't exercise the principle of charity sufficiently. Um, oftentimes it comes across as somewhat bad faith. And I, I think that, I think it also just isn't all that useful because for the most part, if you're if you're coming out really hard against an idea, generally you're communicating that to to people who generally agree with you already. And so it's more just like getting kudos and backpats from your tribe versus getting the information to the people who could who could potentially benefit from it. And just generally the way that most like quote unquote debunking is done, things aren't phrased in a way that will help build a bridge to help like convince people who may have believed previously the thing you're trying to debunk. Um, and so, yeah, don't do much debunking. Don't do many call outs. Cause I, I mean, I think most people in the fitness industry generally mean well and aren't just complete charlatans. But anytime I attempt to give Dave Asprey the benefit of the doubt, and I remember he wrote an article about injecting yourself with urine and then another one about how you should uh, 
drop your pants and get 15 to 20 minutes of direct sunlight per day on your balls to boost testosterone. I have a tremendously difficult time doing that. So anyway, one of the rare call outs you're going to you're going to hear on this podcast or from stronger by science stuff in general, don't sun your balls, don't inject yourself with urine. Um Dave Asprey generally am not of the opinion that he's a good faith actor. Yeah, and I mean so Greg I'm always the one who's like really cautious about like what goes into the podcast and what doesn't. And like when when you mentioned this article, I was like, now that sounds slanderous. And then I thought about it and I was like, all you're doing is saying a thing that he published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. Like I know you can read I, the article for for yourself. No, I was like, it says like, collect your urine in a sterile container. And inject it into yourself, and that will help treat allergies. Like, come on. You know, I, I exercise a great deal of caution in that realm. And when you, you, you are said mu- you, were, you are much more restrained than I am. Yeah, and you said you were going to attribute those ideas to him. And I said, that's completely out of bounds. Shame on you. <laughs> and then I realized all you're doing is bringing attention to an article that he purposely put his name on. Yeah, and, and the thing is, before... Like before I I was going to talk about this on the podcast, I went to make sure that like, oh, maybe he put a correction in the article. Maybe he delisted it or something like that. But no, like fucking things still up there. There's nothing to indicate that his views on this have changed. And I mean, so my opinion is that he is probably a bad faith actor. I will leave open the possibility that he's not. And maybe he is just that gullible that he legitimately thinks that, you know, fuck allergists, fuck modern medicine. There are, like, sterile, well-tested allergy shots, which I will note, I have a lot of of experience with. Like, I spent eight years of my childhood getting allergy shots, like, three times a week. It made a huge difference to my life. Like, it works, and it's medicine because it's well-studied. And essentially what he's proposing with urine injections is the same concept as allergy shots. Like, expose yourself to something you may be a little allergic to, you'll produce antibodies, maybe some of those antibodies will collect in your urine, and then you can inject that into yourself, which is kind of the same thing you're getting with allergy shots, like gradual exposure to an allergen to like hopefully decrease your body's response to it. But like, you can get the same thing without injecting yourself with piss. And usually, like, if you don't know what you're doing, it's usually a good idea. You shouldn't be injecting yourself with anything. Yeah. You know, leave leave that to the pros. Yeah, I mean, like, (laughs) yeah, injecting yourself with something is really, like, the nuclear option when it comes to experimenting on yourself. Because unless unless you eat something that's incredibly toxic, your liver protects you from stupidity before stuff actually gets into your blood and general circulation, right? Like you have you have the barrier of your intestines, like stuff has to be absorbed. It's going to go through your liver. Hopefully, like if something's really bad, a decent amount of it will get metabolized on the first pass. But like if you're putting something straight into your blood, you better know for damn sure what you're doing because you're taking out like two or three lines of 
your body's built-in safety precautions against fucking yourself up. Like, yeah, just the idea of injecting... Yeah, disregard the fact it's urine. Like, unless you're a doctor or you have clear instructions about exactly how much to inject in what way of something, like... How to do it. Yeah, like, maybe you get, um, like, the... Maybe you do like daily intramuscular testosterone injections for like TRT, or maybe you like you insulin use stuff, insulin, yeah. or maybe you have an EpiPen. Like those are things that it's it's a, a fixed dose of something that you have a prescription for that you have been trained to do. It's not just fucking willy nilly piss in a cup, draw it up in a syringe, and hope for the best. Like that's that's so outrageous to me. Yeah, and and the thing is, good. and the thing is, it's it's probably in general not that dangerous because as Rip Torn said in Dodgeball, do I have to drink my own urine? No, but it's sterile and I like the taste. I, the only part of that that I wanted to draw attention to is it's sterile. So generally, urine is sterile. Um, so like that kind of helps, I guess. But then if you get a fucking UTI, it's not sterile anymore. And you're just injecting shit into yourself. It's dumb. It's and it's it's I so mean, dumb. And the more I think it's about it. It's a waste it, product. Yeah. It went out for a reason. Man. <laughs> Eric, have you come across the people online who who think that urine is like a wonder drug? No, I don't I <laughs> So, if I could do my job without <laughs> having to actually go on the internet, I would. So, so those people exist, um, and I'm not trying to attribute this to to Asprey. I don't think that he's one of these folks. Uh, but there are there are people who believe that one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself is collect and and reconsume your own urine. Um, and so, one, I'm just putting that out there because. A, if there is if there's a pseudoscientific belief that is ripe for for people to like make jokes about online, I think that's a good one. Like flat earth, yeah, it's funny, but like that's fucking played out. People have been making flat earth jokes nonstop for the last two or three years. They were funny at first, now they're just old. Um anti-vax stuff, also crazy. But also, I have a hard time finding it funny because, you know, there could be kids dying of easily preventable diseases. But drinking your own piss, that's funny, and it hasn't been mocked as much as it could slash should be. So I'm proposing that the next time you're on Facebook or Instagram and you want to make a flat earth joke, make a piss drinking joke instead. Yeah. I, I also like that within this, you brought up the the idea of just like jumping off the top rope and saying like a very obvious thing to dunk on a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. Like like the, the, the debunking kind of culture of like the, the, the feeling I get, I, I don't get this nearly as much as you do, but if someone were to like hit up my inbox and be like, hey, people are being wrong on the internet, go dunk on them. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like, dude, I just don't, to who is this productive? These people feel very strongly about this thing. Just about everybody that's not in that camp 
knows that it's a really dumb idea. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't see the utility of me jumping in there and saying, hey, did you know everyone in the world disagrees with you? And then they say, yeah, it's because the world's wrong. Like that's going to happen 11 times out of 10. So if you go into that hostile territory and tell them they're doing dumb stuff, they don't care. They've heard it before. Yeah. They think I, you're an idiot. And if you do it to your people and say, hey, look at these people I'm dunking on, then you're just going to get the like... 30,000 likes, uh, you know, slap on the back. You, you got him this time, Greg. Like, I just don't see a lot of utility in that. No, I, I agree. And I, I think I think what you said contains a lot of truth that th- if, if you're going for a dunk and not just tr- trying to calmly explain stuff, it's probably just going to reinforce what they already think. Because a lot of those beliefs are kind of conspiratorial, like, you know, modern nutrition or modern medical science has been like corrupted by big money interests and big pharma and blah, blah, blah. And like, it's all wrong and fraudulent. And then if you come in and say like, hey, guess what? Modern medical and nutrition science disagrees with you. Like that is reminding them of a core tenet of their beliefs that like, yes, these people disagree with us and they're all wrong and corrupt. Like it's... It's not meeting people it's not meeting people where they are and communicating with them in a way that will be effective to change hearts and minds. So the the one thing that I will do sometimes is like if someone's wrong, I often don't care cuz a lot of times I mean if it's like if it's something lifting related and someone just says something I generally disagree with, I'm not going to get worked up about it because generally it just doesn't matter. So, for example, um, there's there's a ton of people who will claim very confidently that, you know, you should do two sets of pulls for every set of pressing you do. Um, and that's like the key to saving your shoulders or something. I don't necessarily agree with that. And I also generally disagree with how confidently they state it because they state it as if it's a proven fact when to the best of my knowledge, there's absolutely no research on it. Um, Or if there is, it's maybe weak and circumstantial, but like what's the worst case scenario here? Someone does a bunch of rows and now has big lats. Like fine, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) like that's not something I'm going to go out of my way to, to ferociously combat because like I I think it's probably wrong but it's not harmful if someone does it um it's the difference between somebody being like hey I enjoy a ketogenic diet like fine I'm sure you're gonna do fine with it versus like hey I have an infant and I only feed them uh ground up beef well I mean there's a way to find out if that's the best diet for infants there is yeah so uh a few months ago um, <laughs> Lane Norton got into it on Twitter with, uh, what's her name? Michaela or Mahela or something like that. I think it's Michaela. Okay. Jordan Peterson's daughter, um, who like is a very vocal proponent for the carnivore diet, which is exactly what it sounds like. If you know what it means to be carnivorous, you know what this diet is. Um, which like for adults, eh, I mean, it's probably not the best idea. Like scurvy exists, but it also doesn't strike me as a diet that people are going to have perfect adherence to. So whatever, I think it's kind of dumb, but if, 
an adult wants to try it, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. It's a bad idea, but you're allowed to make bad decisions Correct. as an adult. Yeah. So if memory serves, um, she said something about like having her kids do it. And I'm no pediatrician, but my, my general understanding is that um, kids benefit from having more in their diet than just steak for like optimal growth and development. And so like Lane said something and called her out and they got into a big argument and then uh, the, the, the crescendo of the argument, at least for me personally was, uh, she was like, well, there's one way to settle this. (laughs) My kid can beat yours in a foot race. (laughs) I was like, like of, of the of the many ways that one could potentially resolve that issue like oh let's check out pubmed okay like you're you're not that into the medical science like i don't know like do, like do do a case study with like a single individual whatever yeah but, or you, like, or you could be like hey look my my child with these different developmental markers is everything's fine we're doing yeah, great yeah like yeah. Th- there there are m- many different ways that one could uh, adjudicate that argument with with varying degrees of rigor, but jumping straight to well, my kid's fucking faster than yours, therefore you're full of shit, Lane. Get off Twitter. Like that was that was tremendous. Like th- that that much like the injecting piss article is one of the things that every time I remember it happened, I just laugh. Like it's <laughs> it's a uh, it's like a Kafka esque moment. We're just the the pure absurdity of it the only thing you can do is is laugh at it that's all you can do all right so moving on to our next segment uh we have one called question of the day uh and the question is what are some big things that you've changed your mind about over the years Uh, i definitely have some that come to mind immediately for me but uh, i'm going to kick this over to you to start with eric what are some things that you used to believe very strongly that you've, I don't know, maybe just generally changed your opinion on or possibly done a complete 180 about? Yeah, that, it's a good question. I, I also think it's like, it's kind of like a gut check for people that say like, oh, I'm evidence-based in my approach. It's like if someone is, but they've never changed their mind on anything, it kind of makes you wonder if they actually do continue to seek new evidence and implement it, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. maybe they are that one person that all of their first assumptions were entirely correct, but probably not. Mm-hmm. So I've got a few in mind. Some are training, some nutrition. On the training side, I grew up, my first exposure to bodybuilding was from one of my wrestling coaches back in the day. Really great dude. And we trained together. We, we really got after it. But a lot of our workouts were from like the muscle magazines, you know, you you it'd be like the page you rip out and be like, Hey, this is what we're doing for the next four weeks or whatever. And a lot of those really emphasize the like bodybuilder split. So like, we're going to go in today and we would often add stuff on top of it because we just, we just really like training, man. And so we'd be like, so we're going to start with this, but really what's going to happen is we're going to go do chest for about 90 minutes. You know what I mean? And like, if you're doing chest for 90 minutes, it's a lot of chest. Yeah, yeah. For one day. Yeah. And so so a lot of my first exposure to to training in the bodybuilding 
context was extremely high volume per session. And for a long time, I thought that was the way to go. And it's easy to lead yourself down that path because you walk out of the gym and you're like, you know, <laughs> you do a 90 minute arm day. You're like, I'm not going to be able to like zip up my jacket tomorrow. Yeah. But, you, you don't have any proof that it was an effective session, but you have ample proof that you did some shit to your arms. Yeah. Like, you're like, so, something happened. <laughs> yeah. You, you walk out of the gym, you are completely wrecked and you're like, that seems like it should have been effective because I can hardly move. Uh, but, but you know, the, the more that I train in different methods and, and the more that I obviously look at the literature on training, I, I think that there's absolutely some really, I think there's a pretty steep cliff there when it comes to diminishing returns within a session. And you, you've brought this up before. I forget when we were chatting about it. It may or may not have been in front of a microphone. But it was for a audio roundtable for mass. Yeah, for mass. But it is one of those things that is a really important consideration for the the literature looking at how much volume is quote unquote optimal within a given week is whether or not that's happening in one session or spread, spread throughout several, you know, because 30 sets for a muscle group looks very different if you did that on Wednesday versus if you did 10 sets Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Those are two very different stimuli for mm -hmm. training. So in, in any case, my within session volume over the years has really fallen. It's really dropped quite a bit. And my training frequency has picked up a little bit. Um, sometimes in more extreme ways, like currently I'm doing like full body workouts at least, you know, three to five times a week. But even, you know, transitioning from a pure bodybuilding once a week split down to like a push pull legs or an upper lower kind of split. Um, I, I re that's about as as split out as I get these days is maybe doing push pull legs, but going really training six days a week so that I'm getting everything twice a week. Um, another thing is meal frequency and peri workout nutrition. I, I used to be of the mind that you got to eat as frequently as possible. Um, and you know, right before the gym, right after the gym. And aside from just being a really annoying way to live as a person, like I think I told you sweet potatoes were ruined for me. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't go near a sweet potato for like three years mm -hmm. because my first bodybuilding diet, sweet potatoes were like one of my main carb sources, obviously, because mm -hmm. it was, you know, traditional bodybuilding diet. And uh, I had to eat frequently and I had a cadaver anatomy course. This is when I was an undergrad. Oh, yeah. You, and you, to you told me about this. So I had to always like it was a long lab. And so I would have to sit in the hallway of the cadaver lab uh, and eat my sweet potatoes. And like the whole building just reeks of formaldehyde. So like in my mind, I could not separate the taste of a sweet potato from the smell of formaldehyde. Those two were intrinsically linked for years. Uh, thankfully, I've gotten over that and I can dive into some sweet potato fries, which is a big thing for me. But but yeah, the, the meal frequency, it's a really inconvenient way to live and it completely dis it it's really not representative. We we like to believe we have this perfect control over the time course of like when amino acids enter our bloodstream and when they peak and when they need to get spiked again. I think we delude ourselves into thinking we have a lot more power than we do in terms of meal timing. Generally speaking, 
I think if you're lifting hard at least three meals a day, it it might be nice to spread them kind of evenly, but even like the eight-hour feeding windows in time-restricted feeding studies seem to be fine. So I've really come around on meal frequency, and I used to be like, oh, at least five or six. Now I'm like, at least three. And can you get away with time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting? The evidence, it's not a large body of evidence, but it would suggest yes. One of the things that's striking to me is, so, like, I thought the same thing as well, that, like, small frequent meals were kind of a key. And one of the things that's striking to me is going back and looking at fitness information from the 90s and early 2000s. The thing that strikes me is how strong that take was. So if you read basically any bodybuilders or any fitness person's uh, takes on, you know, what it takes to lose fat and build muscle, that was like the first tip anyone would give. So it wasn't it was a given. Yeah. 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 It wasn't like, yeah, first thing you need to do is, you know, make sure you're eating enough protein and your calories are in line. It's like first things first, buy stock in Tupperware buy fucking 40 pieces of Tupperware. If you're not eating eight meals a day, why are you even trying? And then once you have that, you know, big thing locked down, eh, then maybe look at protein, you know, like that, that, that's how it was presented, which in hindsight is wild. But I think that's why you, me and everyone thought that meal frequency was so big because it was, it was unquestioned as like the most important thing. And I think, since everyone who had credibility was saying it, I think everyone just kind of went along with it. Yeah. I mean, it was, there was no pushback on that whatsoever until intermittent fasting kind of came around and became a thing. Um, so I, I think that's been a really, like, I don't think intermittent fasting is like the be all end all of nutrition, but I do think it was helpful to have that conversation kind of shift way toward the other end of the spectrum. So we could kind of, uh, recalibrate how we view meal frequency um and that's another example of like sometimes weighing like whether somebody's necessarily correct versus doing something harmful that's another thing like if someone tells me about their meal frequency there's so much wiggle room in terms of how you can make a good diet work like if you're telling me that you have eight meals a day or two I don't view any of those as being absolutely catastrophic. Whereas like back in the day, if you told me, yeah, I only have two meals a day and they're kind of close together. I'd be like, dude, you are out of your mind if that's what you're doing. Now I'm like, eh, okay. It might not necessarily be perfect, but you're fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of leads me to another thing on on the view on the nutrition side of things. Um, I used to really get caught up in like overly mechanistic views of nutrition and while they are very appealing, especially to people who are drawn to very nuanced approaches in their training and nutrition, like sometimes people really enjoy getting way down into the details and I understand why. But when it comes to nutrition, I've definitely shifted more toward comprehensive views versus overly mechanistic views of how we eat. And the reason is the more that you follow each trajectory of like, hey, here's this thing that we should go in and tweak, like a very specific nutrient or even down to like metabolites of particular amino acids, the more we follow those, they more often than not lead to dead ends. 
you know so like a great example is this is just a for instance but we we started to figure out hey turns out the branch chain amino acids seem to have something to do with protein synthesis seem to be pretty good with muscle protein synthesis and so then people go nuts about branch chain amino acids and they say actually we could just take leucine and forget the rest of them and we just take leucine and then we're we're like well actually there's like three different metabolites of leucine that might all be kind of cool and we go down that road and it's just like the more we try to go down these really specific uh very mechanistic viewpoints of like how can we cheat the system and turn muscles on in terms of protein synthesis I still think you take a step back and it's like, well, you have to eat enough protein and probably have at least a couple meals a day. And that's about as, as good as we can do. So I've gotten away from, you know, I'll still follow them as a, it's interesting to look at some of these potential things where people say, Hey, here's a thing we could exploit. And certainly we should always be open to that and start following the research where it leads. But, um, I follow it more with interest and less with optimism if that makes sense yeah like like i'm a lot more skeptical when someone says hey here's this thing we can exploit i'll be like ah interesting let's see if it works usually we end up falling back on some main core nutritional principles i gotcha yeah um and then finally my eagerness to use dietary supplements has changed a lot uh back in the day when i was first getting into fitness I was so stoked about just about anything that seemed like it might be useful. You know, like back in the day, I made a pre-workout when I was in college, like just bought all the ingredients and mixed them together because it was fun. And it was still a good, uh, uh, there are more destructive ways to spend your time as a young man. So it was a good learning experience, I think, but man, I look back at the stuff I put in it and I'm like, God, all of that was useless. (laughs) <laughs> like almost every ingredient do, do you remember what it was oh yeah so i remember i would i'd put in obviously caffeine and creatine um i'd put in beta alanine i'd put in l-arginine which tastes horrible i've never had arginine it's terrible and it also fun fact doesn't work um and I put in branch chain amino acids, which were unflavored, which tasted like rubbish Ooh. and didn't mix Ooh. at all. So there'd just be chalk at the top of my drink. Wait, I, I think you may have had bad stuff. That's extremely plausible. Yeah, I, I think I think the solubility of branch chain amino acids is supposed to be quite high. Well, whatever I got was not doing well maybe it's because i was jamming so many <laughs> powders into that. <laughs> maybe that's just the last thing i put in it was like nope yeah fair enough like this mixture is tapped out yeah fair enough but um in any case yeah so I, i've become a lot more skeptical about dietary supplements i keep my my supplement rotation extremely slim compared to when i was young and optimistic and you know you'd see the advertisement and you're like well it does say science is in there and then you would just jump on it, you know? Yeah. Um, d- did you ever use glutamine? I did. I think, you know what? I think that was also in the mixture. Okay. Yeah. So I had this kick for a while where, I mean, based on what I was reading in muscle magazines and on the internet, 
I thought that the key to getting a good training response was to to spike your growth hormone. And so there was that one study on glutamine from way back in the day where it apparently increased post-exercise growth hormone production by like 12, 1200% or something like that, which to the best of my knowledge, that study was never replicated. But I mean, you really only need one study for supplement marketing copy. Correct. And so I used glutamine. Uh, there was some research looking at the post-workout growth hormone spike from using pre-workout melatonin. I remember that, yeah. So I would take low-dose melatonin, um, which actually I think worked out pretty well for me. So I'm... I'm Define low-dose. Uh, like 500 micrograms. Okay. So I'm just now thinking back about this. When I was doing that, I was sleeping pretty well. And I've read some stuff about melatonin suggesting that it's better to take it kind of in the afternoon um, when melatonin levels would start gradually rising in the first place. And then when evening and night hits, kind of once you have that process rolling, your own natural melatonin production can take over. I don't know how much research there is on that, but I know I've, I've seen that proposed as a way to use melatonin and thinking back about that time period i was actually sleeping quite well so so maybe that was good but not for the growth hormone um and then also training fasted so i was (laughs) so that was during a period where just just to give context about how stupid i was i thought that like a high meal frequency was necessary but i also thought i needed to train fasted to spike my post-workout growth hormone. And so that meant skipping my pre-workout meal, which meant that I was still eating like three hours before I went to the gym. So I was nowhere particularly close to a fasted state. So but you were trained in a three-hour fast. <laughs> right. I mean, but, but back then it was like, oh, you're supposed to eat every like two or three hours. So if... If I hadn't eaten in three hours and I wasn't going to eat until after the gym, so I was going to go five hours between meals, I was like, holy shit, could could a human be more fasted than this? Um, so yeah, I <laughs> I used to do that. I'm sure you, you remember back in the day, people would, would talk about waking themselves up to like chug a protein shake. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, sleep is worth so much more than that. Yeah. So... I actually had a system worked out to do that. Um, so I am a really heavy sleeper. And the only the only thing that's going to wake me up in the middle of the night is if I, if I have to pee like it's literally an emergency. Anything else I'm going to sleep through. I've slept through a hurricane. Um, I've slept through a gunshot in my room. Uh no one was trying to shoot at me. That's a long story. Anyway, like I sleep through everything. Um, so what I would do to make sure I could get my middle of the night protein is I would chug like over half a gallon of water right before I went to bed. So I would wake up at like 4 a.m. needing to pee and I would have a pre-mixed protein shake like sitting right next to the toilet so when I went to pee, I could just grab the protein shake and chug it and, and make sure that I was never catabolic. You're lucky you didn't just start pissing the bed every night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't sleep that hard. Um, 
So, okay, now into some of the stuff I had written down. I mean, like, dude, it's one of the things that is made clear to me is how much I've changed my mind about because um, one of the things that at least once or twice a week this happens, and it always makes me cringe a little bit, is I'll see something that I previously wrote like a long time ago get linked somewhere on the internet and someone says, well, Greg Knuckles thinks X, Y, Z. And it's like a present tense verb, like Greg Knuckles thinks or Greg Knuckles says, not, you know, thought in 2011 or said in 2012. Um, And then I go and look back at it and think, ooh, buddy, this ain't good. Um, (laughs) And I, I don't remember like all of the instances where that's occurred. And largely it's on sites other than my own. A couple years ago, I went through Stronger by Science and made private all of the old articles that I I really no longer agree with anymore. So like, there's still there's probably some stuff on the site still that I'm like, eh, not not sure. I'm like super super sure about that, but like my really bad takes I took off. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so I've changed my mind about a lot of stuff. One of the big ones is I used to be super super pro keto. Um, and, and I think that this is, I think this is one of the reasons why I am pretty tolerant of people who are wrong, but not dangerous is, I mean, like, I, I think the right thing about keto is that it's a perfectly viable dietary strategy for most people. I used to think that it was, you know, magical. It was keto intermittent fasting. So it was like, you know, no insulin, all of the growth hormone, hell yeah, going to turn me into a fat burning muscle building machine. In hindsight, like no, (laughs) but I mean, I thought that it worked fine. When I went back to a more normal diet where I was eating more than two meals a day and consuming carbs, it was better, but like the keto was fine. Um, And like, what eventually got me to change my mind was, you know, exposing myself to more research. And I think of anything, I stayed stuck in in that kind of pattern longer than I would have otherwise been because a lot of the people I now agree with, like I came across their takes on social media and I was like, God damn, these people are assholes. Because whenever they would talk about keto, it was mostly in a very like condescending and derisive way. And I think that that actually kept me doing keto than I, than I would have otherwise, like for 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 longer. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we've all been there though with keto. Yeah, you know, and it's the hardest thing in the world because I'll try to give like a pretty even keeled, nuanced take on keto and be like, "Listen, it's probably fine, generally, but like it's not better." And mm. like that that enough it, that alone is often enough to set some people off, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Um, so another thing I've changed my mind about several different times is training frequency. So much like you, I used to do a lower frequency. I I got into fitness more on the powerlifting side of things than the bodybuilding side of things. But this was during a period of time when like Westside was still the biggest name in the game. And Louie advocates like little workouts for like accessory work, but the main template is, 
you know, two lower body days a week, two upper body days a week. And this was also around the time that Jim Windler was starting to get more popular. Um, and I, I don't know really what he says these days, but back then, one of the things that he was really pushing is like, you know, lifters don't emphasize recovery enough. Like maybe some of these guys are training too much, too frequently, not giving themselves adequate time to recover and adapt. And so what I ended up doing was like a modified West side template where I was doing like one week would be two lower body and one upper body day. And then the next week would be two upper body, one lower body day. So it was basically taking the standard template and stretching it out into nine or 10 days. Um, and I thought that that was like the perfect balance of, you know, Louis's perfect system combined with the insight that people need to take more time to recover. Um, and so, yeah, like my typical frequency for like my first few years of training was about one and a half times a week on average. And then I got really into Shaco stuff, which was somewhat higher frequency. Um, I got into the like MS, MSIC programs pretty quickly, which if memory serves, was like squatting three or four days a week, pulling two or three and benching like four or five days a week, give or take. Um, had, had a fair amount of success with that. Then experimented with Bulgarian style training, which was, you know, ramping my frequency up from you know, squatting three or four days a week to two or three times a day, um, and getting in prob probably averaging about 15, 17, probably averaging between 16 and 18 squat and bench workouts a week. Um, so like the super high end of things. And I was like kind of an advocate for high frequency training for basically everyone for a while. And now that's been significantly moderated. Like I do think a frequency of at least twice a week is, is generally going to be better for most people, for most lifts, most of the time than a frequency of just once a week. Um, but I'm, I'm much less in the, you know, three to five plus days per week camp than, than I once was. Um, another just general thing is I'm much more accepting of inter-individual differences than I used to be. And <laughs> I think the thing that helped the most with that was actually coaching people. And th this is something that I've noticed. Um, folks who actually coach or are personal trainers or like, you know, work to try to get humans bigger, stronger, professionally, tend to be incredibly understanding of inter-individual differences. Because when you've worked with hundreds of people, you see like, oh, some people look at weights and put on 20 pounds of muscle and get way stronger. And some people are as consistent and as hardworking as you could ever hope that they would be. And, you know, every five pound PR is a cause for a massive celebration because it took four, like four months to get there and they still only bench like 185. Like you see both ends of that spectrum. And when I was like young and confident and obviously quite gifted for lifting, I thought that I was making better gains than everyone else just because I was so much smarter than them and training so much harder than them. 
And then when I actually started coaching people, I realized like, oh, I'm full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) People just respond to training differently. And and I mean, like you can all that's also hammered home if you read research and understand how variance works. Um, But I mean, the, the thing that did it primarily for me is just actually training people and seeing that firsthand. Um, and then kind of along with that kind of a meta shift that has happened for me is just the strength of my takes in general has generally gotten a lot weaker. So (laughs) it's, I mean, I used to be, I used to be one to pretty confidently proclaim like, you know, X is better than Y and for these physiological reasons. And like, that's just how it is, bro. And these days, I'm much more willing to say, like, you know, when you look at the research, it seems like this is better than that on average under these circumstances. These may be some of the underlying mechanisms, but there's a lot we don't know yet. And inter-individual differences are such that, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing for everyone, but it's at least a good starting point, Um, which is not as... It doesn't make for good sound bites, but uh, I think it's probably a, a more intellectually rigorous and honest way to approach things. So, like, I'm—I mean, I, I think if you asked me five years from now, uh, what things did you used to, you know, have really strong takes on that you've done a complete 180 on? I don't know that I'll be able to come up with anything. Because I don't know that I have that many strong takes, other than stuff that's basically completely obvious. Like, you know, hey, the first law of thermodynamics exists. Uh, if you want to get big, you should probably eat a fair amount of protein. Um, I mean, just... The, the, the things that I believe strongly are things that I would be horrendously shocked if they turned out to be false. And now it's just kind of, I have opinions that lean one way or another um, that I don't hold incredibly strongly for the most part. I'm very interested that this is one of yours because if anything, I've been working on moving the opposite direction. So I think because most of my writing for the last six years or so has been purely academic for journals, Mm -hmm. it's like if you put a statement in a research paper it's almost like it's viewed from a different perspective. Like if I, if I read something from a lay press article about fitness, I look at it and I say, under what conditions might that statement be true? Mm -hmm. I try to be kind of charitable with it, but in like the peer reviewed academic setting, if you make a statement, I feel like people view it as, is there a condition in which that's not true? Mm -hmm. And in that case, they say, you got to get that out of your paper. Mm -hmm. Like, that statement's not right. You have to remove it from the paper. Or put like 17 qualifiers. Right, yeah. And so so what I have what I realized when I first kind of got back into non-academic writing was I need to stop having 19 caveats for every statement I say. Like th- there's a middle ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think it's interesting that I think we're both working our way toward that comfortable middle ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Of like just because we come from opposite sides of that uh the background yeah like like i used to have a lot of hot takes and you used to have 
only cold takes freezing cold takes and and now we're both kind of working towards like lukewarm like room <laughs> temperature takes yeah but no i mean honestly like if you put something in a research paper that under some context could be falsified you have to fix it mm-hmm. you have to put a million caveats or just punt and say ah never mind so yeah I, i'm trying to increase the the heat index of my takes and and you're <laughs> I think you're already there, though. I think I think the stuff I've seen from you the last few years has been pretty, oh no, it's, pretty new. It's gotten a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think you're referring to years ago. Probably. Yeah, when when I go back and read the stuff that I wrote, anything from like mid 2015 to like early 2016 on, there there may be a little thing here or there that I kind of disagree with, but for the most part, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this this is still pretty good. It holds up a lot of stuff prior to that i'm not not the most proud of yeah um and man that's one of the things i'm i guess i'm kind of worried about for up and coming fitness pros these days because i feel like i mean back in the day like facebook existed i think instagram was there but it wasn't big yet and for the most part, like if people were putting takes out into the world, it was mostly blogging and then sharing that the link to their blog on Facebook. And so if you weren't connected to many people, if you had like a super hot take that turned out to be a s- super bad take, maybe a dozen people would come in contact with it. And I had a bunch of those, but th- <laughs> th- though they never stuck, right? Because yeah. like... I by the time my audience started growing, I'd kind of learned better and had went back and either like changed those articles tremendously or hid them. And these days with just the way social media works, I feel like one bad take can get, you know, blasted to tens or hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, maybe it's because someone's a charlatan and they're trying to swindle folks or maybe someone is a good faith actor. They just don't know that much. They're inexperienced. But then the next time someone sees their name, it's like, oh, I remember that guy. He said some really stupid shit that one time. Oh, it's it's Greg, the go home and inject your piss guy. <laughs> yeah. I know this. I don't want to listen to him. So, yeah, I, I, I worry about, I mean, nothing's ever truly gone on the Internet. But I think it used to be easier to forget things on the Internet than it is now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean coming up in the fitness space in 2012 versus 2019 i th- i think it's a completely different world out there on social media and and i do i do wonder so kind of to take a step back from this question like what have you changed your mind about i think another kind of general meta question is how easy is it to change your mind and i think it's it makes it way harder to change your mind if you are someone who has a very well-known hard public stand on a particular topic. Um, Because then there will be a lot of people who, you know, very much agree with you that about whatever this particular take is. And if you change your mind, you risk pissing them off. There's going to be a lot of folks who don't exercise the principle of charity and think that, you know, this thing you said that was wrong, you knew it was wrong and you were just trying to lie to folks, even if that's very much not the case. And 
So then if you change your mind, how accepting are they going to be? Or do they think it's just a start of a new grift? Um, and I think that just the more the more interconnected people are and the more just aggressive people are in general, the harder it makes it to change your mind. And I do think, I do think that that's generally heading in the wrong direction overall. I agree. All right. So next segment is a fan favorite. Uh, we've been going back and forth. Everybody knows Greg and I both like to spend some time in the kitchen. <laughs> a lot of my recipes tend to be pretty macro friendly, but this time Greg actually has a recipe that is also pretty macro friendly. Um, so I, I don't want to give it away, but Greg, go ahead and take it away with recipe time. Yeah. So th- this is less of just one fixed recipe and more of just a general recommendation. And that is, uh, if you're looking for something that can have really, really good macros while also being really flavorful and very low maintenance, is I think people sleep on stews too much. Uh, and I think people do that because stews tend to not be incredibly macro-friendly. So like a chicken stew might be cream-based, um, which obviously isn't macro-friendly at all, uh, unless maybe you're doing a traditional keto diet. Um, beef stew, you tend to use a fattier cut of beef, like uh, short rib or maybe chuck. Again, pretty fatty, so macros aren't going to be good. But if you use lean meat in a stew and just add extra flavoring stuff to kind of compensate for that, it still turns out quite well. So what I am eating this week is a beef stew. And like I said, generally, if I was making beef stew um, and I was just trying to make it as delicious as possible, I would probably use chuck. Um about 20% fat. Fat helps lock in flavor. A lot of the delicious flavor compounds in food are fat soluble. So if you have more fat, it helps you gain and retain more flavor. Um, But this month or this week, uh, what I did my meal prep with is London broil, which is very, very lean. It's like 96% lean, something like that. And it's the type of thing where it's around as lean as I round, but I mean, I round is just garbage. Uh, London broil is actually pretty good meat, but it's, it's one of those things where it has so little fat that by itself, it's not going to be that flavorful if you just try to make roast beef with it, but you can throw it in a stew, gives you a ton of protein. Um, and if you have enough of it, it, it still imparts a good beef flavor. So if you want to jack my recipe this week, Uh, how I made my stew, it was 800 grams of carrots, 600 grams of celery, 900 grams of onions. So that's kind of the basics that would be at, uh, at the heart of an American, or I believe also French style beef stew, um, to kind of add some more savory notes and ramp up the beefy flavor. I also put in about 750 or 800 grams of mushrooms and a ton of garlic because garlic is fantastic. Um, Then I used about five pounds or about 2.25 kilograms of London broil. Um, To thicken up the stew, I used half a cup of flour. So if if you have celiac or you're gluten intolerant, there's probably other things you can use, but I mean, traditionally you just use flour. And so this, this, I will note, was a 
big ass pot of stew and it only took half a cup of flour so like per bowl not very much but flour is super absorbent so you don't need that much to thicken it um three liters of beef stock um so generally i would make my own but i just bought some from the store so like it had collagen in it but no fat no carbs um and then really just whatever herbs you would like for more flavor so i went with rosemary thyme and marjoram um but you can really do whatever you want and so and then just salt and pepper to taste I would recommend salting early in the process and putting in less salt than you think you would need just because as it cooks down, the salt will concentrate. And so if you get it as salty as you want before it simmers down, uh, it's going to wind up incredibly salty. And as something that's kind of optional, you will get more flavor in the finished product if you sear the meat beforehand. Um, but so it it kind of depends how obsessive you want to be with stew for health reasons. So there's some evidence that using high heat cooking methods on proteins will create compounds that can like promote oxidative stress in your body, maybe decrease insulin sensitivity a little bit. Um, and so just generally for if if you wanted to consume meat as healthily as possible, you would go with low temperature cooking methods. So for more flavor, sear the beef. If you're just doing this to be super healthy, you don't have to sear it. It'll be a little less flavorful, but it'll still be good. Um, and so essentially you just take all of that, you throw it in a pot. This is the low effort version. The high effort version is you might want to time when you put the vegetables in because you know, like carrots take a long time to cook thoroughly. Um, onions don't. So if you throw it all in at once, some of the vegetables will turn to mush. I personally like that. If you want to tin the stew more, though, you can kind of time when you put the vegetables in. But I just threw it all in at once. Um, and then, I mean, just basically check back on it every hour or so. Keep it at a low simmer and give it a stir. And once the like soup or like stew sauce, I guess. I, I guess it's almost a gravy. Uh, once it's as thick as you want, your stew is done. And so um, the macros for the beef stew I made uh, per bowl is 68 grams of protein, 23 grams of carbs, and 13 grams of fat, uh, which, I mean, those are tremendous macros. The difference between this beef stew and a beef stew that I would make normally is just the the stuff that add adds flavor i put more of it in so more onions than normal more garlic than normal uh the fresh herbs i put in i put like twice as much of those in as i typically would just because this is a lower fat product and so it's not going to be quite as good for holding on to flavor so you have to add e extra flavor to compensate but you can compensate and it still has a pretty good mouthfeel. Like the, the flour does good work for thick, thickening it up and making it feel like a rich product um, without having to have all of the fat. So if you've never tried, if you've never tried like to make macro-friendly super stew, I would strongly recommend it. Um, it's not that hard. Like really, as long as you go with uh, fibrous vegetables and lean meat, it's hard to go wrong. The macros are going to come out pretty good. Beef stew is a good thing. It's a good option to start with. 
just because beef stews are inherently so flavorful that if what you make ends up being off the mark a little bit, it will still taste good. It's a good option for meal prep because you can make a big ass pot. It'll last you the whole week and it's incredibly low effort. You could make it in a slow cooker as well, but it, I mean, you're basically just throwing all the stuff in there, walking away and, you know, just killing the heat when, when it's done. Um, and also if you're on a diet, you're trying to cut, um, you know, you're not just eating macro friendly stuff for the fun of it. Soups and stews are really good for inducing satiety on a per calorie basis. Um, just because there's a, a lot of extra like semi thick liquid in them. Um, one, it helps fill up your stomach more and it also delays gastric, gastric emptying. So it helps kind of on a, like I said, on a per calorie basis, it helps improve satiety. So, um, a, a good study to check out on that general topic, uh, is called soups increase satiety through delayed gastric emptying yet increased glycemic response. Um, but I mean, there's, there's actually a somewhat sizable body of literature on soups and stews. So that's just one example. Um, but yeah, so shared a recipe, but I would strongly recommend the general concept of if you want something low effort, that's going to fill you up and have a lot of flavor. Um, soups and stews can be very macro friendly. And I think are, are very slept on. You see a lot of pictures on social media of people, you know, eating fish or chicken or lean meat or whatever, like on a plate, but you don't see that many soups and stews. It's good. It's good shit. Uh, it's easy. It's healthy. I would recommend it. The question that I think a lot of people are wondering is how much weight does your recommendation carry? And I think this weekend we're going to find out a lot about that because this weekend we are having a lasagna cook-off. Now, this is not open to the public. <laughs> um, do not show up at Greg's house. But this weekend we will be having a lasagna cook-off. It will be Greg's lasagna versus mine. And we will be putting them head-to-head. And uh, we'll probably have two different ranking systems. One would be an overall subjective quality ranking. The other will be scaled to a per-calorie ranking. And I'm aiming for a sweep. I think my lasagna is going to take both, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I've gotten a lot of very good uh, very good feedback from people out there on Instagram that have, have tried my recipe. They loved it. They've made some little variations, which I don't condone, but... Um, <laughs> At least they're at least they're in the ballpark. So, dear listener, if this gives you any idea of how badly Eric is going to get defeated in this lasagna cook-off, his girlfriend is actually Team Greg on this one. Uh, we're gonna meet up beforehand to make noodles, make beautiful lasagnas. Eric is going to. Is that for real? Yes. When did this conversation happen? I don't remember any. I, this is the first I've heard of this. So just as some more context, uh, Eric's girlfriend is also really into cooking. So Eric, maybe like a month ago, um, we generally discussed like challenging dishes we had made before and things that we would like to try at some point. And one of the things fairly high on both of our lists is we had never made noodles. Um, and so... You can get like a pasta roller, but in it'll have like cutting attachments. That seems like a lot of work. So I think 
And it's also just something else you have to buy. So I think lasagna is a good thing to start with just because after you make the noodles, you just kind of have to roll them flat and don't have to worry about cutting them uniformly. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we chatted about this on messenger like two days ago. She's, she's coming over early. We're making noodles. So we're going to have beautiful, fresh homemade noodles to go in a classic traditional lasagna and you're screwed, buddy. No, that's troubling for two reasons. First of all, uh, my girlfriend is colluding with the enemy, which is really messed up. But more importantly, I don't understand why this misconception continues to survive, but you do not need noodles in a lasagna. <laughs> I've said it time and time again. We got to put that myth to bed, and we're going to do that this weekend. All right, now to play us out, if you are in the United States listening to this, which is about half of you, uh, you know that college football started this week. And I've got ties to the beautiful state of Ohio. I'm a big Ohio State football fan. Greg, you're an Ohio State football fan as well. And so what what is our prediction with Ohio State football this year? How many games are they playing? I think it's, I think it's 12 in conference, and then the conference championship would be the 13th, I believe. So 15-0, and 0, baby. 15-0, and 0, and then the, then the playoff. Hell yeah. Uh, so Urban Meyer, our old coach, is now on television as a uh, one of the television people. And someone asked him on air the other day, is this Michigan's year? And he very, <laughs> very awesomely seemed extremely surprised and said, you're for what? <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I mean, the the Urban Meyer tenure has been kind of up and or was kind of up and down at Ohio State. But the fact that he maintained a perfect record on Michigan automatically makes him in the pantheon of Ohio State coaches. Yeah, up and down in terms of like, there were times where we felt like we were underperforming. Yeah, but that was with the assumption that we should be performing clearly better than like 99 and a half percent of teams like yeah. we never had a bad year with him it was just like oh we should have been excellent correct uh if you're listening abroad uh college football is huge in america we love it uh american football in general it is slower than most sports most of it is spent waiting uh you usually acquire brain damage uh, which is now a whole field of literature is the football concussion literature so if you're listening abroad and you just don't get it um you're not wrong necessarily but college football is awesome and if you can struggle through it learn the rules and develop the patience for a sport that is 80 percent waiting around it is worth it because oh my god it is fun to watch yeah and and i really do think ohio state's going to be good this year um, just looking at how well the offense did with Ryan Day calling the plays last year, I think, I think Urban had a good defensive mind. Obviously, I think he was an offensive innovator back in the day at Florida, but I think people largely caught up with him. Um, and I, I obviously think he was a tremendous recruiter, but I think, uh, I think the offense is going to be something to behold this year. And that it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a good year up in Columbus. Yeah, I mean, w- new quarterback, new head coach, new defensive coordinator. There should be a lot of surprises, but definitely the expectation is, I mean, quite high. And I think preseason they're ranked in the top five or six. 
by by some of the polls? No, I don't know. Uh, but but they're up there, um, and we are stoked. So go Bucks! Everybody enjoy it, and let's keep our fingers crossed. I know Ohio State has uh, they've they were in the news trying to get the word the trademarked. So let's hope that everything's going well in the courtroom there. <laughs> were, uh, were they really? I think so. That's incredible. <laughs> it's awesome. So we're gonna keep them in our thoughts, and, and hopefully the the lawyers are gonna come out on top. That's like uh, that's like that drama on YouTube a few years ago when some big channel was trying to trademark the word react <laughs> yeah it, it was like one of those things like the kids react videos or whatever where yeah. it's like kids listen to old music or like watch old tv shows but yeah they were trying to trademark react and people thought that that was over the top which i, I kind of agree but um ohio state trademarking an article the i think it's fitting i don't yeah. think that's a reach i don't think so all right. Um, thank you so much for listening. For the next half of this podcast, uh, we've got an interview with Lee Peel. Lee is one of the internet evidence-based fitness OGs. I mean, she's she's been at the forefront of that game for years and years and years. We had the pleasure of hanging out with her in uh, Kansas City at the Fitness Summit this year. And uh, while we were there, we said, hey, you ought to come on the podcast. And fortunately, she did. Now, we recorded this interview what feels like seven or eight years ago. So I don't think we made any particularly outdated references, but if we did give us the benefit of the doubt, but uh, we hope you'll enjoy that interview, which will be coming after the music. All right, welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is Eric Trexler. I'm here with Greg Knuckles, and today we are joined by Lee Peel. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. God, you guys' voices really are soothing. They, they are very soothing. That's, that's why people come. We really don't talk about anything particularly informative. <laughs> it's just kind of... It's like I used to watch Bob Ross a lot, you know, the, the painter. Oh, uh, Happy Trees, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't that into painting, but it was just so, so soothing. No, I really believe he was some sort of weird PBS form of meditation for a lot of people. Did you did you know that his son is carrying on the mantle? I did not. The Ross name will never die. Oh, so the son is also going to be painting happy trees. That's yeah. just the greatest news. Yeah. Um, now, Lee, like I said, it, it's very nice of you to join us. Now, the three of us, you, me, and Greg, we hung out a little bit in Kansas City at the, uh, the fitness summit this year. Yeah, and um, I didn't realize, uh, honestly, the presence that I was in. I mean, obviously, I knew it with Greg because it's a given, but I, I didn't even realize the amazing presence that I was in with you, Eric. Right, and I'm so, you know, Greg and I, we thought that, that we all had a good time. Um, so, you know, Greg and I, every Sunday night, we have uh, kind of, it's kind of a pillar in our community. We have a weekly Sunday night dinner. It's really important to me and Greg and our families. And we extended an invitation to you, and we said, why don't you come by for Sunday dinner? And at that time, you were very, very busy. And then we extend the podcast invitation, and all of a sudden, the schedule opens up. So I guess the I first question for is. the podcast would be, would you like to explain yourself? Well, first of all, let's just, not a lot of time has passed between now and Casey. And second of all, it's really stressful trying to plan um, macro-relevant 
uh, casserole dishes for a large group of people. It's very intimidating. Um, you don't know the pressure that I've had on my end. I've, I've been going through recipe books. Um, I've, I've been trying to organize whether or not that I do layered dishes, separate the dishes. Um, then there's just general conversation, you know, trying to prep and plan that, uh, doing background research, making sure that I can, you know, suck up to all the women there because they're the ones that are really important. Um, who, who said anything about macro friendly? You know, what's funny is I swear that someone, I thought it was you, Greg, that you, man, it's funny if you're being sarcastic, but I, I talked about the fact that I was a vegetarian and you said something about the fact, well, there's, you know, plenty of different like macros there. You made some sort of comment about there being macros and I thought, oh my God, did they like, and you said something about meal prep, how it's like kind of like meal prep for the week or something. And I thought, oh, did they actually really break down their cookout gathering into like different macros? And do I need to know the macro content of the food that I bring? Because that's some next level like <laughs> Oh, God. Potluck. Lee, Lee, you, <laughs> like you that's some no, serious no, no. next level potluck going on there. Which No, so the, the way it typically works is people do use it for their, their meal prep for the week. So... Mostly, like, people just bring a bunch of meat, we throw it on the grill, and then people will have a portion of the meat that was thrown on the grill. And then we we all just either, like, make or bring whatever else we feel like eating. Um, since this past week was Memorial Day, um, like, I made a big old pan full of sliders. So it was, like, oh, burgers and barbecue pork and buffalo chicken with like homemade yeast rolls and then we made an apple pie and there was ice cream for it and it was tremendous um but no we we it, if if our meals do turn out macro friendly that is purely by accident <laughs> gotcha so is this more of the um dry greg uh kind of sarcasm that i might have taken a bit seriously in the moment is it is it a chance that that happened? Because I have a feeling that that happens a lot with you, Greg. That you might say something in a dry I, I don't manner, I don't and think I would people even, are taking it seriously. I just don't think I would even joke about that. <laughs> yeah, that seems very out of character. Um, yeah, very, you, you very just couldn't be further from the truth when it comes. I mean, it's just in terms of macros, it's debauchery, absolutely okay. shameful. What happens on Sunday nights? Um, I mean, most people felt ill this past weekend because it was just it was way too much well now way i really hate i missed it now I really but hate I but it, it but in a good way yeah yeah ill in a good way now lee quit screwing around we got to get to business here um sure fine try to focus <laughs> i'm sorry so sorry so lee peel you are um an author you've written a lot of things on your about me on your website you you say that you're a layman researcher so <laughs> What what is your kind of operational definition? What is a layman researcher? It yeah, um, it, it, the majority of my time is really spent in literature review, right? Um, I I just I spend a lot of time reading other people's research. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time going through and um, really what you were discussing, uh, really collecting data from both sides of the fence. Um, a lot of my time is is spent. Um, Siphoning through really anything I can get my hands on uh, and and trying to come to the conclusions and put things together and and try to help my audience or help my clients and the people that I that I aid with 
trying to come to some sort of good and educated conclusions um, and um, and occasionally occasionally trying to contribute to the field in a, in a really positive way and and maybe make a make a change here or there. Um, but I, I like to make sure that I make it very clear that I, I try not to operate outside of my scope very you know very much and um, I really like collecting data and and running through the data and doing things like that and and just trying to to come to some conclusions but uh, it is very I will say, uh, how can I put this? I don't know if amateur is the is the right term. It's not formal. It's not formal. It's it's uh, it's not a formal way of doing things, or at least not at this time. Well, you've certainly made your mark on the industry, uh, which includes but is not limited to your books. So your your first book. When did that one come out? The first one. Well, the initial um, release of it, it. It started off as a sticky post in in a in a weight loss forum. That's kind of how it got started. Uh, it started off as a sticky post and it was kind of troubleshooting. Oh, you're not losing fat, like you're having a problem losing fat. And this was kind of <laughs> the dawn of the internet, but it, it was at the peak of, this is before Facebook was, it was only still kind of college bound and and, uh, and it wasn't for everyone. So uh, message boards were very much a big thing, you know, and um, it was a, it was a manner in which a lot of people collected their information. So uh, from bouncing around to the bodybuilding.com forums or body recomposition, uh, even just weightlossforums.com, I think, uh, JP Fitness, all of those, uh, the, there were certain stickies that I had and I would kind of update those stickies and then people would say, oh, you know, you should should do like a little ebook or something like that. And I had a lot of friends in the industry that were uh, very, very big on the releasing of ebooks and e-products and stuff like that. And and they were kind of, they understood how that worked. And so I, I released the Fat Loss Troubleshoot. I, I think the first one, I, I want to say it was 2007, 2008, somewhere in that area. Um, it was horrible uh, in the sense of any sort of grammatical writing or layout or structure or anything. I, I think I charged $9 for it or something like that. Um, and over the years, it's gone through a few editions. It's on its fifth edition right now. Um, uh, and it, then it, I'm, I'm going to be releasing further. But um, yeah, it's it, it, you know, it's it's really, in my in my opinion, it's, it's really gone through a lot of great um, development over the years because it's really traveled with the breadth and the girth of my knowledge, both as a writer, thank God, and as uh, as an educator and as a learner uh, in this field. Yeah. So, and, and before you got into that, I, I assume that you were like coaching and training people as well. I was. I was. Um, you know, I <laughs> hubris of youth. I, I definitely jumped into. I was one of those individuals that I sort of jumped into to my job and teaching at the exact same time versus kind of taking a step back and being like, Oh, let me, let me apply this stuff for many, many years and then share my knowledge upon you. Why souls? But, uh, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I zest, I was filled with a lot of zest and there are things wrong on the people are wrong on the internet. I am, I, I was a walking version of that terrible meme. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I was training people. I was, I was working with people in person at a local gym. Uh, the way that that particular gym work is kind of like a booth gym. You pay for a spot in it and you pay for the ability to be able to use the gym and then you can kind of do whatever you want. You can work from mm -hmm. five in the morning to you know 12 at night because uh, it, it was even a 24-7 gym, but you couldn't have clients in uh, after 12. And um, so, yeah, I worked night and day at that gym. I took on anyone I could from Craigslist, from... Uh, my friends, from the colleagues, you name it. I took on every single client I could. I worked with people online and I, I basically just obsessively compulsed it for 
uh, a solid three years before I ever really took a break and started writing down or kind of communicating any of that information to people. But I'm still kind of always on the message boards. You're one of those trainers that kind of made the transition from relying on intuition and anecdote um, and kind of the hands-on stuff and, and made that transition and said, what if I peruse the research literature and start looking there for answers? So, and then eventually relaying that to others. But what what was kind of the impetus for transitioning from, you know, a lot of people think all the information I'll ever need, I can observe in the gym. What, what made you make that transition into becoming a, a layman researcher? I, th- I think one of the instances that really drove it was well, ultimately problems. You know, my clients are having problems. It's not, it's not point, shoot, do. You know, I ran into a position in which that I, I tried to achieve what I wanted to achieve with my body composition. And outside of a few areas of, of hiccups um, in the early stages of it, um, I did not really run into any problems. It was kind of all the general calculators worked for me, you know, um, all of the general protocol worked for me. For me, it was working fine. And for a large subset of my initial clients, it was working fine. It was kind of that um, jackpot lot of everything coming together and, and working great. But then, then you start to notice the clients in which that gaps fall through and there are issues, be it with adherence or with um, some sort of issue of, uh, you know, stress or overtraining or at the time, you know, I, I, oh, is it, is it starvation mode or, or metabolic adaptation or, um, you know, what are, what are the issues here? Why are things not kind of working together? And it, it, it's kind of, it was kind of that issue of, oh, you know, things aren't so black and white. I'm starting to see more of the gray and nuance of things. And, and I think that that's really true with any one who gets into any sort of field in which that they start to get into a specialization of it. They see, oh, okay. Um, there's always a lot more nuance and it's always a lot more murky and complicated than these things. So problems, essentially, adherence problems uh, were an issue. Um, you know, uh, success problems with linear fat loss or weight loss or linear muscle gain. Um, it, basically, anything that stopped being predictable started going down that route. And luckily for me, um, I was associated with a lot of people who uh, at at that time were you know knee deep uh, they they were either professors or doctors or or uh, in the industry as as researchers or um they were just obsessive compulsive people that really like pubmed and um the combination of those things opened up that gate for me and i always joke and say that um bro science taught me science uh because um it it was a it it was a great entryway into into the world of of research and and, and to some degree academia that uh, previously to me had not been something that I explored. Yeah, it, it seems to be a common thread of people that w- once you've done it long enough and you start running into problems that are difficult to explain and there's just a ton of conflicting anecdote. It's almost like the natural kind of extension of that is where can I find some objective assessment of this or some quantification of it? And it kind of shepherds people toward, you know, becoming one of those very obsessive PubMed people, you know? Yeah. And and it's also in that moment, too, that you're trying to uh, trying to live beyond the anecdote. You know, and and I wasn't in a situation in which that uh, I could lab rat trap people. <laughs> you know, I I um and at the time, yeah, you know, I got I got started kind of right at the uh, initial entry of things like you know fitness trackers and and bodywear devices and things like that. And uh, there, 
ultimately with all of my work and wherever my work went, it was kind of, okay, what can I, how can I apply this? How, how is this applicable to my situation in which that, that I'm using? And, and I would try to, you know, if, if, if a client was upset about say, oh, you know, weight trending and she, she, she really was being diligent, uh, but her weight trend or her linear trend was off, you know, what were the explanations for these things? And a lot of the times it was finding at least some sort of minor explanation um, or association of, you know, this is why this is happening. Um, this is why this takes place. You know, food, uh, food weight, for example, was just such a big one. Um, you know, the return to maintenance weight and, and, and staying at a, at a certain maintenance weight. And when you drop into a deficit, how you lose, you know, you lose a certain amount of glycogen, you lose a certain amount of food weight and things like that. But um, just even things like that and understanding how explaining to my clients, this is what's happening when you're trying to lose body fat, for example. Um, these are the things that um, you're going to lose in the initial of a deficit just from eating less, just from uh, these factors taking place. Um, certain things can take place. This is what can make it jump back up. This is what can make, you know, kind of having the answer to that really annoying why kid. And I was the annoying why kid. But being able to answer those questions, in my opinion, really helped with the psychology of my clients. And it really helped with the psychology of their adherence and getting through those stuck points. Um, and I'm not saying that they're, you know, aren't, aren't always kind of more difficult cases, but finding the answers to some of those questions and utilizing, you know, science and biology and, and how we kind of get there, so to speak, or how the body gets there during these processes, I found to be huge um, for the ability to talk to my clients and to help ease them through transitions of things and to feel safe. And, you know, in, in knowledge, we have safety. I truly believe education is a key to feeling safe from emotional distress. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, earlier, a couple terms came up, metabolic adaptation and starvation mode. And you also mentioned, you know, one of the big problems you see or the, the questions that would kind of fall on your lap as a coach are stalls and weight loss and confusion about them. So you, you've written a lot about metabolic adaptation and starvation mode. Is that just because you, it became such a common question in practice? Yeah, you know, it somewhere around um and this was more online that this was driven from uh cuz I as I said I was taking online clients during a small amount but I it, working with online people as well and I kept getting these messages and and I think that this is a very particular note uh to note that I was getting messages and working with people that were at coming out of contest prep or that were really um really driven to their goals, really driven to trying to achieve their goals uh, at, you know, to some degree in their minds of saying like at any cost. And um, there was a very particular subset of audience that kind of was matriculating towards my direction and, and towards some of the other people in the industry at that time's directions. And um, I'm not going to name any specific names, but there were certain people or, you know, who now are leaders or, or people that kind of understand this aspect of the thing and their girlfriends were having problems. And they're like, I don't understand, you know, like I, I, I'm a, I'm a coach or I know what I'm doing. And um, so I started supplying body bugs and um, sending them out to people and we would start tracking data, you know, we start tracking steps and the, and what ultimately a lot of the problem was, and, and you know, to kind of give a spoiler, a lot of the problem was, was basic metabolic adaptations that combined with, to some degree, you know, some level of poor food monitoring or uh, intermittent periods of overfeeding that would, you know, cancel things out. Um, and then also just uh, 
a general, if you will, over conditioning, be it, I don't know, increase of microchondrial efficiency or, you know, what have you, but the collection of all of these kind of anomalies coming together to kind of make uh, the answer to our problems. But at the time, at the time, even in a lot of the main nutrition literature, you saw things like starvation mode. I mean, this is even in textbooks and um, some textbooks that we read. We saw things about like starvation mode, or if you go into a deficit and you you eat too little for a period of time or what have you, your body's going to you know, shut down and quote unquote, stop, for, uh, stop burning fat or stop releasing fat. And so there was this kind of hyperbility and um, there was a, a moment there, if you will, at least in my just in my circle of the internet um, and in my circle of kind of the people that we were communicating. And, and we even had a sub forum in, in a popular uh, internet place. We had a, we had a secret, it was a hidden sub forum that we would kind of put information or deliver information or things that uh, we kind of found out. And it, and it was solving this problem. And, and what we kind of ended up, you know, seeing and learning through that was obviously some research uh, that's been around for a long time uh, kind of came to, to head and, and, you know, discussing things like leptin or, uh, you know, the issues with thyroid um, health and things like that. Um, issues with decreased R uh, resting metabolic rate or REE and things like that. All, all of those things kind of, you know, yes, those made senses, but there was also the issue and, and what we found to be more the case was uh, to have to do with, you know, low grade activity being just as important as, as exercise activity and all of these things kind of coming together to explain how, yes, you can be metabolically not at your most high level, uh, but a lot of it also has to just do with efficiency, you know, efficiency and um, the body trying to do what it can and you being intelligent enough to not drive too hard, uh, to take breaks when needed, and ultimately to adjust when need be for uh, decreases uh, that are going to happen when anyone diets um, and, and not try to drive yourself too hard for things that don't have to happen, uh, if you will. So it, it was, I think it was a great time uh, to, you know, from just a, a communication sense and, and kind of, you know, discovering thing, but also from that was born a lot of mistakes as well um, and assumptions about things. But I, I think I saw the, the industry in general rally around really solid answers and information for these, these problems as, as they came about. And then of course um, it, it really hit the next level when your paper got released and, and every, every, everything else has kind of followed through. So it was, I, I it was a really great time to kind of see it happening, but uh, the, the big core problems were a specific subset of audience that was really having a hard time, quote unquote, losing weight, regardless of their training or no matter what it was they were doing. I, I just like to draw attention to kind of like, the meta narrative you're you're weaving right now because i think something that's lost on the damn kids these days <laughs> who are getting into fitness stuff now is like if if you're if you're like you know 19 20 you're you're getting into fitness you find like quote unquote evidence-based fitness stuff there's a lot of stuff within our community now that everyone just kind of accepts as fact and is taken as almost obviously true. But what, what people don't realize, and, and this is basically the story you just told, is like, it wasn't that way 10 years ago. No. Uh, or, or really even five years ago. No. And it took a lot of work from a lot of people to, you know, spend like weeks in PubMed, just like digging up obscure references that... You know, maybe if you had a PhD in nutrition and like it was 
your job to know all of that stuff, you would know. But like, as layman, you you don't really know that. And so it takes like this gargantuan effort for people to accumulate all of this research and synthesize it and get a coherent picture out of it, make sense of it, say like, hey, here's what the research is kind of saying. And then bros on bodybuilding forums to say like, oh no, this is bullshit. And so then once you have the information, then it's like another multi-year war for the hearts and minds. And now like the perspective kind of wins out. But fucking kids these days, they didn't see any of that. So they're they're like ungrateful. And it's like, oh, well, well of course that's how it is. Like, why, why would anyone be dumb enough to think otherwise? And it's like, ah, you kids, you don't know how good you have it. I, I, I you know, I try to not... Um to cry in my uh, violin soup about that. But sometimes I really do. I'm like, you damn kids shaking my fist, get off my lawn. Um, it really is true. It, 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 there's, there's so much of what I remember when I was being a part of even, even little things now that, um, that are just commonplace. Like, sure. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Neat. You adapt, uh, you know, your, your body has uh, a lowering of, of movement. It, it was a big thing when we were saying things like that or talking about things like that. And it was, it was really challenged. Um, and it was during a time and, and people, you know, there was a big wave of, of hit, you know, uh, the, the high intensity interval, you know, training thing. That was when I came onto the scene, that was like insane. Um, paleo was kind of starting to get going as well. And there was just all this, like basically do everything you can to be it. And, and I'm not saying it doesn't still exist. So obviously keto is kind of the, the new thing right now, but there's all this intensity and focus on how hard can you possibly work and drive yourself into the ground. And, and, you know, I, I, I never really understood over conditioning and this was kind of off the gate. And, and I don't, I don't know if it was just didn't make sense to me, but I never really understood. Let's condition ourselves until we we break and we have the most insane metabolic efficiency and then say that our metabolic rate is going to be even ramped up and higher. Didn't really make sense to me because um, to me, in my mind, I was like, well, aren't you what you what you're really doing? Isn't aren't you making yourself more efficient and aren't you making yourself in better shape so that you know, when you walk to the mailbox, you feel better. When you take your stairs, you it's easier. And wouldn't that to some degree equate to kind of a less overall caloric burn? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there was all these answers, if you will, or these kind of um, challenges and claims coming even from somewhat of a scientific world that we're saying, we're going to ramp up your metabolic rate and we're going to reset your metabolism and we're going to do all these things. And there was some of it that left my head scratching just from a, even when I wasn't conform, uh, informed at all about it, where I was like, I don't really know if that makes a, a lot of sense. I'm not entirely sure that makes a lot of sense, but I, okay. And, and it was in the textbooks. You know, a lot of it was in the textbooks. And that's not to say that, you know, people that work to put things in the textbooks, I've, I've even, you know, minorly contribute a quote here or there. And, and I'm so proud to be remotely a part of any of it. So I, I don't say that to knock it, but it's, it's, it takes a lot of work. And I, I feel um, it always is kind of, you know, a few years back and then it gets there and then it becomes accepted. And I mean, isn't that kind of the truth too? In a lot of other areas of life, it's obviously not true in the fitness industry, but it takes a lot of work to get people to kind of be okay and shake their heads to be like, yeah, no, okay. That makes sense. A everyone's saying that's making sense now. Everyone's okay with that. There's not just a bunch of contrarians for the sake of being contrarian or people that have an agenda. So you have to fight all of that. You know, you have to fight all that with with what you're saying. You have to fight people that have a monetary agenda. You have to fight people who are afraid. I mean, look at it with vaccines, for example. It's a great example. You have to fight all these kinds of people with everything that's going through. And I, I think that people forget that 
sometimes it's the people and I'm not trying to say that it's just myself, but sometimes it's the people in the background being like, yeah, but look at this evidence. And then someone who's more taken seriously says, no, but really look at this evidence. And then somebody else who has a bigger audience says, no, but really look at this evidence. And then it becomes this collective. Well, yeah, God, guys, duh. And then you make you kind of want to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> but, I was going like, to say, like, is there basically like a magic five minute window where something <laughs> goes from being like largely rejected and then for five minutes, it's like, <laughs> I accept that and it's a good point. And then five minutes after, it's like, yeah, no shit. Everybody knows <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, I always find myself being stuck on the wrong side of that window, man. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> and it makes me hate myself in life sometimes. <laughs> I think the example of that that I remember the most vividly is the whole like clean eating thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember like the the first article that like really kicked it off is uh, Alan Aragon wrote a piece for wannabebig.com back when that was like, oh, wannabe big was great. Um, So that kind of like kicked it off. And then there were like four or five like copycat pieces. And then uh, Army Leg wrote like a 15 or 20,000 word article going through just like an ass load of studies on like food quality and different macronutrient compositions and whatnot. Yeah, I even think it he got like orthorexia in there too. I mean, he touched it all. Dude, that got like 60,000 shares on social media yeah. or something outrageous. Yeah. And then after that, it just kind of became uh, accepted fact. And if anything, the pendulum at that point swung way far Another the other direction. way. It's like, well, well why would you ever eat a potato really when down. you could just eat yeah. Pop-Tarts? Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, like like that was the progression and like when Army's article dropped, that was like the end of clean eating, at least for like several years. Yeah. Yeah, because after that the the if if it's in your macro stuff really took off and people yeah. were happily and boastingly on their Instagram instead of it being, "Oh, look how amazingly I made a piece of broccoli look and taste." Um it was, "Look, I'm having a Pop-Tart for post-workout." And you yeah. know, it, it like and it and it took that turn. Yeah, and um, I from a sociological standpoint, fascinating to watch. <laughs> but sometimes yeah, and, when and you're then, in it, you know, it's uh. <laughs> and, and then, like immediately after Army's article, I saw another like three dozen copycat articles, and all of the comments on them were like, "Well, no shit, everyone knows this." <laughs> it's like, it's like, dear commenter, you didn't know this until two weeks ago. No. Like, get down off your high horse. No, I, I, I feel like it's always that. Um, it's the, it's the ex-smoker effect. Um, I always call it like yeah. that because everyone I know who used to be a smoker, you know, is like, "Oh, smoking's disgusting. I, I can't even believe something." It's like you used to smoke like a pack a day and it's like yeah well i wouldn't now and it's like okay all right well that's fine <laughs> good for you maybe maybe think about the people that are there you know before and after um but yeah it's 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 interesting to watch from a sociological aspect it can be somewhat frustrating to watch when um i i think when you're really trying to get something out there about change and really really are trying to help the narrative of people and trying to help people steer in the right direction you know guide away from misinformation and stuff like that and um sometimes i find myself just being like um i can't wait for another one of those big articles to kind of come so that people are like oh there you go and and i try narcissistically not to think oh well it has to be your article or um you know or uh, has to be your contribution um just because 
you know something doesn't mean everybody else needs to know or you know you know it but it, it is it it is one of those kinds of of things to watch um when you've been in it so long i think it's you see these trends happen and it's fascinating to watch the trends uh it, i think it's very telling and i hope that it'll help my work it, it seems to have these past few years yeah so one of these topics that's been, you know, as we mentioned, kind of, there's a lot of back and forth. Now I think a lot of people are generally on board with it. But coming back to metabolic adaptation, you wrote a book called Starve Mode. Now, when someone asks you, is starvation mode real? Yeah. How do you answer that question? Uh, you know, I say theoretically, um, it, the concept of uh, what a lot of people think starvation mode was, which is the body of adapting or kind of, you know, somewhat shutting down or uh, altering certain processes. You know, does, does there have an adaptation? I mean, that honestly, this is how I always kind of explain. I'm like, is there an adaptation? And technically, if you wanted to quibble over the fact that there's a mode that we go into and we eat less food. Yeah. I mean, I guess to some degree, there's a bit of a, 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 a linguistics truth to that, right? Um, but what I always explain to people is, and one of the things that I've always said is that in order to lose body fat, you have to reach metabolic adaptation, which is, I think a lot of people don't really think about it like that. But in order to access body fat loss, you you kind of, you have to have a drop in certain things. You have to you have to pull from fat stores. You have to have alterations in certain hormones. You have to have things take place. The, the body has to know that it needs to utilize fat as fuel to some degree. And um, uh, aggressive metabolic adaptation, extreme lowering of, of uh, or alterations of um, your, your, you know, resting metabolic rate, which, you know, even when we look at, and you obviously know this. So me saying any of this right now is if that I'm saying anything to Eric, by the way, I'm, I'm more speaking to the audience versus Eric, but I know um, a lot less than you would think. And I, I know way less. Than you think. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but all of these, uh, you know, all of these things, they, they, they kind of have to take place and there can be severe forms of it. But, uh, but ultimately, you know, to some degree we have to adapt, um, but metabolic adaptation is kind of, you know, on at least some small level. Um, even if you're just looking at just TEF, just, just lack of less food, you know, less, less food and, and alterations of most people have some sort of alteration of subconscious activity, um, expenditure, you know, these things, they just happen. And what I tried to explain to them is that you can, you can sit and you can hem a haw about it and, and make it an, uh, some sort of horrible event that happens, or you can just understand the, uh, associations of dieting down, uh, or going into a deficit and, and then you, you just respond and you try to do what you can to make smart decisions uh, to combat the things that have to take place um, and understand those and try not to drive crazy the other things that don't, that don't have to take place. You know, there's, I always say there's a degree of dieting and deficits, that strategy. And what I try to do with my clients is just try to create the best strategy for each client. And for general speaking, I try to create the best strategy for generalization. And so in the book, you talk about basically what metabolic adaptation or starvation mode is and some of these adaptations that take place. And you mentioned to some extent there, they seem to be somewhat unavoidable, but yeah. there are instances where we could definitely exacerbate yeah. those issues. Um, so what's your general approach in terms of like, you know, tangible, applicable strategies to try to just make the best of the situation when dieting? Yeah, generally speaking, and I, 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 when I say generally speaking, it really is general. Um, <laughs> um, generally speaking, uh, 
It really depends also on the client. Like I, I know from stalking you a little bit, Eric, that you've, you've worked a lot with contest prep and things like that. And um, let's say I'm dealing with like a contest prep person and someone that really goes on and off seasons or that works within a tighter schedule. Um, the approach for someone like that is going to be very different than, say, the approach for your casual general housewife or or, or um, weekend warrior dad or something like that for all these cliche titles. But um, it, it's going to be kind of different because it, it's really, and I will say this, it's really how much room they'll give me, <laughs> um, how how much... Uh, need to be at a certain level, how fast and how soon, right? Uh, so a lot of it has to do with time. So my first aspect of strategy is time. How much time will they give me to do what it is that we need to achieve? Um, if an individual is really fine with taking a kind of slower and steady course reign and um, they they aren't in any sort of quick area and and I could get into any one of details of what strategy I use for different ones. But um, if an individual gives me time to do what I need to do, then generally speaking, I like to try to keep my muscle gain and conditioning, anything that has to do with really um, body recomposition or performance or have you on a, on a larger, grander scale to be kind of... Uh, not a part of fat loss. Don't get me wrong. There's always lifting, uh, uh, if, if possible in my programs, um, there's always muscle maintenance and always doing what we can to try to get what we can, if you will. So I don't want to try to say that I don't train or we don't do training, but kind of, if you will, I try to, to only stress what we need to stress. And, um, I try to keep low grade activity steps, um, um, or, you know, moderate, basically nothing above the RPE of five for uh, a lot of, of cardio and conditioning. I know that that goes against what a lot of people do, um, but I find that it really helps to focus more on weightlifting for, you know, keeping at bay atrophy and maybe trying to even get a little gain here or there between, um, depending on where the client has is at in their beginning to intermediate stage. And, and I try to keep low-grade activity uh, and stressors um, kind of the main component. Lots of sleep, um, lots of watching electrolyte or mineral replacement, very basic things. But I try to do that so that adherence is king. And adherence isn't a problem because, you know, if we will, if we pull from kind of this stuff, you know, even if you look at studies uh, like the the Matador study or things like that, everyone talks about, oh, it's, it's, it's the thing that, that said that metabolic adaptation happens and that intermittent fast, uh, intermittent feeding or what have you, and, and having periods of breaks and diet breaks, it's, it, it's, it's what we needed to see in research. And you can talk about it like that, and that's great. But I also think that a lot of what these things highlight is um, maybe even dietary adherence that breaks and um, kind of a more... Uh, mild approach to uh, deficits um, and having breaks and periods of times in which the body is not so stressed and you can kind of just ease in through these things works really well. So in general, I try to make it as pain-free as possible. I try to watch for adaptations with NEAT uh, or more so NEPA, uh, non-exercise physical activity, because uh, I really separate them between conscious and subconscious. Um, yeah. But um, I, I try to make sure that everyone keeps to the same steps as many variables are not changed as much as possible. Uh, try to have it to where I don't do any sort of extreme macronutrient restrictions. Um, I don't do any extreme, uh, you know, sodium restrictions, any things like that. I basically try to make it to where the individual in a deficit is as close as they are in a, in a weight maintenance with minor adjustments that need to happen at the end when they might achieve a lower body weight, depending on how, how small they get from the start. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned keeping cardio kind of low in terms of exertion and, theoretically volume, I think, would that be fair yes. to tie in? Yes, yes. 
Yes. So that is somewhat unpopular, but that's also the approach I take. Um, okay. So when I, um, the last time I did a contest prep myself, I actually did no cardio at all. Yeah. Um, aside from just walking around sometimes. And it was by far the best I ever felt for sure. Um, and I think people really underestimate your ability to beat the hell out of yourself with high intensity cardio. Um, I mean, it can be pretty brutal to try to get through a prep when you're doing high intensity interval training two or three times a week, plus, you know, all the resistance training on top yeah. of that. Now, have you heard of what, um, Eric Salazar is doing? Eric Lee? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, James said the, the weight, vested weights and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Have, have you seen any of the stuff they've, they've said about that? I, I have, and I've 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 also tested some stuff like that with my client clients, um, weighted vests, and and trying to uh, account for any sort of changes in in body weight. Um, you know, I I've found, on the one hand, I always applaud, and I've even done it myself. So this isn't like some sort of knock or anything. Um, I always applaud trying to eke out whatever we can eke out in a deficit, you know, and trying to yeah. make anything as easy as possible um, or uh, adding anything we can to make things go by smoother. Um, I've found uh, hit or miss results in my tracking of it personally uh, with my clients. Um, I've done it to myself uh, and because for a long time, the majority of any cuts that I did or any sort of changes in body composition I did, the majority of the training that I ever did cardio-wise was walking um, or very low-grade um, endurance, you know, kind of we're talking light jogs, um, maybe like a four. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, I can see the, um, I can see the theoretical of it. I can, I can see how it could, uh, compensate for, for strain. I'd love to see it tested. Um, yeah. I'd and and to just to, to give the listeners an idea. Um, so what he was doing, he's prepping for a bodybuilding competition and his strategy was instead of doing a lot of cardio, he would make sure he maintained his normal step count throughout the entire prep. And he would use a weighted vest to replace the weight he lost so that he was basically maintaining the same kind of basically energy expenditure throughout the day that could be attributed to just kind of walking around and living his normal life. Um, so if you're listening and lost, like, what are they talking about? That's what he did. And his results were quite good. And honestly, I just thought it was cool because it was such a interesting approach to it. Not particularly practical, which he'd admit himself, but yeah. but an interesting, um, if nothing else, I, I think it's really important to help people realize that the non-exercise activity you're doing yep is modifiable and has a very big influence on total energy expenditure. And I think that point gets lost on a lot of people. They don't realize like when I start dieting and I get really lean that I just stop moving. Yep. <laughs> like a lot yep. of people don't recognize that. Uh, it was it was literally the lightning bolt moment that I had when I started utilizing fitness and activity trackers. It was like, oh, Wait a second. I've been because at before that time I was all calculators. It was all calculators. You know, it was all um, activity factor, which is pretty much. I'm not saying that activity factor is is obsolete. Uh, there's there's obviously um, a, a use for 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 it, but um, you know, I it, a lot of it is how many weeks, how many days a week do you train? It's like, well, I train six days a week. 
you know, um, sometimes even seven uh, split training, cardio, running, et cetera. And I would have I would have these female clients that would come in and they would they would say things like, well, you know, I, I train six, seven days a week. I I, I, I eat X amount of calories. I, I can't lose weight. But the other times that they weren't training, they weren't moving. They didn't move. So you can, yeah. you know, just doing one, uh, you know, a, a really good training session every day for some individuals and the type of level of lean they want to get. Um, and especially you throw in things like, oh, well, you know, and, and they'd have a lot of uh, processed, you know, protein powders and and uh, and bars and stuff like that, which isn't bad. Um, but to some degree, sometimes, you know, you have that versus having like very hefty meals with maybe even just that little bit more ounce of teff. And we're not we're talking minutia, but um you know, you throw all that kind of together and you can really see being off about activity factor, being off about low grade movement and all this kind of stuff. And I've had clients that, and this sounds like such an infomercial catchphrase kind of thing to say, but I have had clients that have gone into um, trying to lose body fat and they really do eat very higher calories overall than what they used to be in a deficit but it's because they've changed and altered their lifestyle behavior. You know, they get consistently quote unquote, 10,000 steps a day. Um, they eat kind of more whole foods and care more about cooking and stuff like that. And so to them, it, it didn't seem like such a drastic shift, even though, yes, they were moving more and, and yes, they were kind of having a, um, a more consistent pace. And I, I think that's something that people negate to kind of see. And it's, it's such an important factor to where you don't have to have these like aggressive adaptations, but it also doesn't mean that you're, having some sort of really aggressive biggest loser montage of Jillian Michael sitting on your legs and you're going to be on the treadmill two hours a day running and um, what people kind of see in that regard. There's a middle. There's a great middle. It's a great middle, I think, for health too. I think it's a great middle for general health. If, if I can just toss an anecdote in here. Um, so I am uh, historically not very successful at cutting. Um, which may come as a big surprise to you guys. The one time that it did go really, really well, it was my freshman year of college. <laughs> and I went into college as a history major. And that basically just involves like memorizing absurd amounts of information. And so I had read that you encode memories more efficiently when you're moving. Like you don't have to be moving fast, but just... Like if you're like trying to learn new vocabulary, if you do it like just as you're walking, you'll remember more words than if you do it sitting still. So uh, I needed to lose some weight anyways. Um, and I had a ton of reading and a ton of studying I needed to do. So I did all of that on uh, the treadmill in the school gym. And so like I just hop on the treadmill going like literally two miles an hour, mm -hmm. like super slow. Um but just walk for like five or six hours a day, um, like at a level that it's not even exercise. Like two miles an hour is super, super slow. But it's like, I'm going to spend six hours a day reading, sitting on my ass, or I'm going to do it walking at a very meandering pace. And I went from like 260 to 190 in like four months. <laughs> nice. Um, which like, I've never had any anything like even bordering on that level of success before. And like, I, like I, I have tried the dietary strategies I was using at that time again, and it hasn't worked nearly as well. Uh, but like you were saying, like I'm the type of guy that when I go into a deficit, my meat just goes yep. to zero immediately. Um, like I'm 
capable of just involuntarily being as still as a corpse. Like, that's just what my body does. Um, but then when I had, like, an entire schedule built around just very, very low-level activity constantly, everything works super, super great. I'm the same way, personally. Some people I have worked with, and I want to caveat, because I don't want to act like, uh, you know, it's it's the only thing, but... um you know, some work better when they have like a burst of really intense uh, energy training and, and, and higher cardiovascular demand, um, even anaerobic states. I get it. I totally understand. But for me, uh, the moment you take my food away, I become a grumpy person and I just want to lay on the couch. So I don't move and um, I, I don't want to move. And I also have a lot of periods of times in which that I naturally don't move. My natural step intake for some weeks could be as high as 3,000 maybe four, because I'm reading all day. I'm writing all day. Like even going out and walking um, a dog and, and walking to the grocery store and cooking. I cook for myself. I don't, I don't buy anything, you know, uh, out foods or what have you, but I just don't move and I'm little. So I have my treadmill desk. I, I, I don't do anything crazy. I'm not, I'm not overtraining. I'm not neurotic about it. I come downstairs and I read some studies and I write some things down while I'm walking on my treadmill desk. And I always tell people if it wasn't for that thing, I would be a heifer. <laughs> I would be just, you'd have to roll me through a door because I like to eat. And when I don't eat, I don't move. And deficits and cuts are not easy for me. And, you know, what is it they always say? Sometimes you usually become obsessed with what is not easy for you. And this has definitely been the case. Um, for, uh, for fat loss or at least any sort of adaptation. Very cool thing about me. Uh, when I diet, my NEAT certainly does go down, but I also essentially become a lizard. Ah. And so what I mean by that is my last prep was in the middle of summer. So it was like late July in North Carolina, which is not mild in no. terms of temperature. And I would go um, in the middle of my work day, I'd be in the lab and I'd be, I'd have like two sweatshirts on and like two pairs of pants. And I would literally go out and lay on a bench in the sun, like a lizard on a rock, just trying to accumulate heat because I was so cold. So like my neat would tank, but then when I know I'm like really ready, it's when I can no longer thermoregulate and I need to start <laughs> sunning myself like, like a, a reptile. Now we've talked about metabolic adaptation. And that kind of naturally segues into the topic of after you achieve the weight loss goal, what do you do after? And so a lot of people talk about um, reverse dieting or recovery dieting or just saying, screw it, we did it, go back to normal. What do you usually have people do after or what do you generally recommend in your writing after a weight loss goal is achieved? Yeah. And, you know, this is. I want to make very clear this this section or this aspect of things, not that all of it to some degree, is is still a in in my opinion, a blossoming area in research to see, you know, how long does it take for X to return to a homeostasis or you know, normal and this, that, and the other. Um, so I'll I'll caveat it with a few things to say that from my knowledge, my personal knowledge in, in research, I think we have some good general ideas about um how hard things can be for people to return back to like a homeostasis after refeeding. It also seems to be that a lot of that coincides with how aggressive the deficit was and how long the deficit time period was. So one of the things that I think people get kind of frustrated with, with my answer on this uh, is that it really is one of those, it depends situations for me. Um, 
And so I'll kind of give my personal, uh, and it and it is very much my opinion based upon what I've read, um, my kind of personal opinion of these things, but it does vary. If I have an individual that's come to me from uh, excessive overtraining, um, probably borderlining, or actually just very much borderlining, probably on uh, anorexia or orthorexia kind of behavior, um, really low body weight, uh, bad mineral, uh, vitamin deficiencies, this kind of thing. Um, how would an individual like that refeed? One, that does border on medical treatment. It borders on a registered dietitian being needed. I'm not saying it doesn't. So as a registered dietitian, if you're reading, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about that, what I'll say is what I found um, from working with registered dietitians at the same time or um, from people who have reported back to me, um, generally speaking, slower refeeding paces seem to do better psychologically and physically. They really do. The um, It seems to be from what we see that that introducing uh, a couple hundred calories um, and and allowing the body to regulate both in um, you know, sodium, electrolytes, uh, uh, um, glycogen, and you know carbohydrate uptake, all of these kinds of things um, psychologically, what it, what it can do and take place. Um, if there's some sort of extreme level of deficiting that's take place, and I am one, and I'll just give another caveat in which that going into say contest or diet prep, I like to do that really slowly on the way down. Um, um, and I like to kind of make it to where everything is only restricted as needed, et cetera. So um, the individuals, in my opinion, shouldn't necessarily fit this need. Um, this is kind of for someone who, if you will, got there by accident, um, et cetera. I, I think that that being kind of slow and steady about it and staying in a maintenance fed state for their new um, body weight and what that new maintenance body weight is um, for at least a period of uh, I, I say on this uh, to be on the safe side, you're talking about three months plus, if, if not even up to six months. There's a lot of um, debate and um, about that. There's some research that says that certain hormone levels can have a time to kind of stabilize from, again, more extreme deficits, you know, um, and, and, start, and even, quote, actual starvation. Um, but, uh, I, I think the longer, the worse that you've been to yourself, it's a really, really basic way of saying it, but the worse that you've been to yourself, the longer you need to be better to yourself. Um, and, and I think that staying at a weight maintenance stable level and trying to give yourself your time to recuperate is good. However, I, I don't think, and I don't believe unless you are at an underfed state, um, that you need to participate in an, and a lot of heavy overfeeding. I think it's just trying to move your, your maintenance. And one of the things that I recommend too, is that you can lower what your maintenance needs are for that particular period of time based upon movement. Just as we were talking about that movement can be associated with trying to keep at bay any sort of adaptation. Well, movement is also the same with as in your maintenance is different every single day. So if you're having a hard time with refeeding or, um, or getting up to your new calorie levels or you're nervous about it or you're having any sort of anticipation issues with that, slow your moving down. You don't have to train as much. You don't have to move as much. Your steps can be a little bit lower. Um, the activity you do needs to be lower, which means your actual caloric need will be lower. And it can kind of, in my opinion, breeze that gap and make individuals who are a little bit nervous about losing the body fat that they've lost um, or who are psychologically uncomfortable about it, it makes them have that space, right? And so then you can see, okay, well, I'm at, I'm at weight maintenance. Um, I'm, I'm eating for my needs at, say, 
1600 or 1800 um, or uh, for a male or individual 2200 and that's on the 2500 it's on a lower end depending on size and, and weight and things like that but it can be that low and that, especially if you're not really moving and you're just doing maybe a few uh, maintenance one or two body uh, full body workouts or something like that what you can do after that is you can be stable and then you can go okay let me see how I can ramp it up and not everybody wants more right? Not everybody wants to eat more, move more, burn more. Some people just want it to be predictable. And I think that that's missed a lot. I think that that's not seen often, that sometimes individuals, they don't necessarily want to burn as much as they can possibly burn so they can eat as much as they can possibly eat. I think sometimes people just want it to be predictable and they don't want to be scared about what's going to happen to them because they don't understand. So um, what I try to do is I try to, you know, facilitate that. I'm like, okay, your weight's stable. Everything seems to be looking good. Um, you're fed. This is what your movement is at this level. Maybe now we can see what ramping that up is and how you feel and like take it to the next place. Right. You know, because I have different metabolic maintenances. Yeah. I I can be at maintenance at 2000 calories or I can be at maintenance at 2400 calories, depending on how I train, how I move, how I eat. It's, it's, it never is the same. It's changing. It's not static. So, um, in the, in, in that aspect of refeeding, you know, I look at the psychology of the individual and what it is they kind of need. And that's the more kind of extreme case, if you will. And it, it, it seems that the longer time you give, um, you know, I've, I've seen some studies. I, I, I think that it's, I've seen some that have done six months or more for certain levels to return back to, to normal. Um, I believe in thyroid and, 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 and leptin. Um, there's one in particular that I remember seeing, but, um, you know, that's that's kind of, in my opinion, the more extreme. If you've been, so we'll jump to the other side. If you've been, you know, any sort of cyclic dieting, uh, if if you've been doing somewhat general um, deficits, but they've not been in any sort of extreme deficits and you're just kind of going in and out of dieting breaks, I think that people have gotten a little bit out of control <laughs> with refeeding and diet breaking and they take it kind of too far uh, and they, they're undoing deficit work that they're achieving. So, um, yeah, I'd like to, you'll see somebody who's like a male and it's like, yeah, I'm dieting from like 32% body fat to 27 and I need to have like a two week diet break every every month. And it's like, no, you don't. Yeah, exactly. Just, Just lose the weight. It's fine. It swung too far, God, right? I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <man. laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm saying like there's no reason to double the timeline if you're not going to have a, you know, thousand calorie a day deficit or exactly. get down to like 4% body fat. It's like you'd be much happier and it'd be much, much more expeditious to just apply a moderate deficit and yeah. get where you're going. You know, I completely agree with you 100%. I think it swung too far in the other direction. Um, uh, in, in some, again, in some subsections of, of, of what we're talking about with this, you know, I see some, I see some groups or whatnot that I, I get added to or something And the groups are literally about feeding themselves back to metabolic health. And these men and women are eating an insane, they're just getting fatter for the sake of getting fatter and just gaining body fat for the sake of body fat in the name of trying to quote unquote reset their metabolic health because um, somehow <laughs> the wires got crossed and they think that that's what they need to do. So, you know, generally yeah. speaking, the the amount of weight rebound, it's a good measure. It is. It's a good measure of kind of seeing uh, how, what your space is. And I always kind of say, which is great about, you know, kind of using yourself as a lab rat or control, you know, be weight stable, be weight, you know, maintenance weight stable before going into a deficit. If you, you know, can, can handle something like that, diet down and see kind of what your initial body weight losses in those first two weeks, because the majority of that is going to come back. 
That's what yeah. that's going to be your comeback weight, you know. And um, everything else that kind of happens after that is going to be, you know, mostly pure loss. And then assume that that comeback weight is going to happen. And sure, there's always variances for you know tortillas and margaritas and <laughs> and being you know in a really high fed <laughs> overfed state. Um, and and that's going to give bounces. But you can kind of look at you know, even though weight can lie, and even though the scale can kind of be be a thing, the weight is is a good measure to kind of watch the trends and what's going on. Uh, and seeing how how much you're bouncing and how much you're doing uh, things uh, in that kind of a regard. So, yeah, um, but well, yeah, now, now now I feel attacked because Greg knows I eat tacos every day. So that <laughs> that tortilla cheap shot is really uncalled for. Well, I'm I, sorry, I, Greg. Go I meant it to be a low blow. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I do actually have a real question. Okay. Um, what what does the data f- from like the research on the national weight control registry show because like those people have lost a ton of weight and have kept it off for i I forget what the criterion is but like a a pretty long period of time um so like hormonally metabolically do they look like people whose bodies are trying to get back to their original weight still or do they look more like people who never had to lose all that weight to begin with. So so I'm kind of thinking here like 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 how is the game different for someone who, you know, gets down to probably unhealthy low levels of body fat and then their body's trying to get back to you know, general health versus someone who is like 45% body fat and then they cut to 15 and then they've been there for a couple years. Like well, I think to be perfectly honest with you, I've never been completely comfortable with all the data that we have um, in that regard because I think there's so many variables and factors to that data that I rarely see all of them taken into account at the exact same time. And I hate to be like a stickler, but um, you know, if you're looking, if you're trying to, when I'm trying to track, oh God, and say something like this is a little. I don't know if it's a little overshooting my my scope, but if you're if you're trying to track whether or not someone's at a healthy weight maintenance, it, like whether or not that it's they're metabolically healthy, it's a very complicated thing to say in the first place in my in my personal opinion because what makes someone metabolically healthy is in my opinion going to be okay, um no abnormal thyroid levels, no abnormal leptin or gremlin levels uh, that were at least that, that, that seemed to be outside of a scope of like normal resting re- uh, energy expenditure is relatively, you know, normal or expected for their body weight. Um, no signs or noticeable signs of any sort of nutritional deficiencies. Um, you know, meaning that uh, skin elasticity, hair, uh, basically n- nothing, uh, no, uh, in, in women, no an- amenorrhea. I mean, men, no libido problems, or I guess that could be women too, but um, that's the kind of common uh, two that line up together. So let's say all those things aren't there, right? Those are the things that you'd have to judge to not be there. Um, and in order for me to think that you're kind of consider, and, and I, I guess I, I'd like to ask Eric if he feels the same, that, that we're kind of on the same page. But to me, that kind of says you're somewhat, quote unquote, metabolic, no, no bone issues, no uh, issues with osteoporosis or any sort of bone mass loss. Uh, you know, n- nothing that really says no CNS stress issues, um, maybe even no depression or anxiety issues due to nutritional deficiency. I mean, there's a lot of factors for me to say, like, 
you're in a space of metabolic healthiness from any sort of long period of deficits. I, I don't know. That's kind of, those are some of the things that would fit in my criteria of that. What I would say is that the my criteria of what looks healthy to me, quote, those are some of the things that would fit in my criteria. Now, I, I think one thing that's kind of related to that, something I, I often think about when I look at these papers that show like, you know, the presence of being in that kind of metabolically adapted state is there's all these physiological parameters measured in it. And the, the you know, the traditional research framework or kind of state of mind is, well, here's how they were before the weight loss. Are their numbers after weight loss yeah. significantly different? And when it comes to things like, you know, total energy expenditure or leptin levels, like, yeah, they probably should be lower than they used to be because that's how weight loss works. Like, I mean, you know, people that have a lot of adiposity tend to have a high resting metabolic rate and a whole bunch of leptin. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I think another thing to keep in mind when you look at databases I would say like that relative is, too, right? Like relative. Yeah. To relative to yeah, where they started. Relative too. Yeah. So yeah, the, the question is like, when you're in that post weight loss state, not are you lower than you used to be, but are you abnormally low outside of a reference range. Yeah, that's what the, the data, or the criteria I would use is what are their levels? Like what are their resting? Do they fit into a normal? You know, do they fit into a normal for what somebody else at that size who had not gone through weight loss went, you know, so resting in energy expenditure for someone who has gone through that weight stable, are they the same as someone who has not gone through, you know, significant fat loss? Um, how much does everything else line up? That's when I would I would feel comfortable saying, yeah, relatively metabolically similar to someone who has not gone through those things. And I, I those are my particulars, and I do not know those particulars. Like even just looking, like obviously I I couldn't help myself but start to Google, um, and I'm and I'm on there, and I'm just looking at some of the the studies that they have, but nothing. Everything that I see with the studies that I see is, you know, you have like the biggest loser study or you have studies about that are looking at alterations and resting integer expenditure or um, and and the ones that I find more interesting are what are the ones that go below a normal baseline? So what are the ones in which that it's like, OK, yeah, you lose a certain amount of resting energy expenditure or metabolic um, level or rate being higher because you've lost body fat. Sure, you're smaller you know, that's going to happen. And as Eric said, leptin will, you know, be lower or what have you. Um, is, is your Grinlin still raised, right? Like is, is that, is that, is that raised higher than an individual who never dieted down before? We have seen that. Um, I have, you know, we have seen some studies that, that point to that, but, um, you know, the, it's, it, it also, I will say that in the, a lot of the studies that point to that, it's not all of them. So then what are those factors? Because as a group, it might be some experience it, some do not. You know, some will experience elevated Grenland levels. I, I even read a study that was talking about uh, elevated Grenland levels in couples who have a fight <laughs> or who don't get along as much. Uh, they have more elevated Grenland levels after eating than those who um, do get along and don't fight. And 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 so post-eating, they did like this test where they they had them they had them eat. They had them, you know, kind of, uh, have a conversation about something that was somewhat difficult for them to discuss, and they measured the levels. Now, these are, you know, small little statistic changes or what have you. But my point is, is that Grinlin is sensitive from things other than just say a caloric deficit. So, if you look at what makes someone in a metabolic healthy rate 
have higher Greenland levels after a long period of time of a deficit. Do everybody have that? Well, if they don't, then what makes the individuals not? And that's kind of where my more curiosity is, you know, like uh, if, if they do a research of people that have these levels and they're still um, higher uh, post-deficit, but some are not, what's the other variable or factor in that? So I, I guess what I was trying to say by the answer to my question, and I said so extremely poorly, obviously, <laughs> um, was what rate someone is metabolic healthy is going to be complicated in my opinion. And um, the baseline is going to be compared to people that seem to have had no issue with any sort of weight loss period or, or any sort of noticeable weight loss that they've been somewhat relatively weight stable their entire lives. But then if I'm perfectly honest with you and I start to get OC and sound kind of crazy, I would also wonder how many of them have psychological or physiological factors from always staying weight stable. And if those other individuals had, other variations and issues from not being able to maintain weight stableness, ranging from depression to trauma to you name it. So I start to get, um, I guess you can tell, I start to get to combing through the variables. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you from, from what we see in the kind of longer term studies, there, there are at least characteristics we can associate with people who are more successful in maintaining their weight loss. Those usually tend to be high energy flux so that they maintain high energy expenditure after the weight loss. Um, the other one is diligent tracking, both yeah. of body weight yeah. and food intake. There is that whole, um, there was that scale study that, too, um, that people who checked and uh, watched their scale weight every day, you know, had post utilizing uh, weight loss, had better weight maintenance than individuals who did not. So the out of sight, out of mind aspect right. of things. Um, high, low-grade activity. I've seen that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of variables to what makes weight maintenance successful post. Yeah. And it, I was going to say for me, like, you know, there's the, the practical aspect, which is people who are good at this, what do they do? And so we, we kind of are starting to see some of those answers come out. Now, the other question from a physiological perspective is, can we get somebody, can we kind of guide them back to a normal physiological state after weight loss maybe even close to where they were before they lost the weight, can we get them there without substantial fat regain? And that's a question that um, it, it interests me a great deal. I, if anyone's at the ISSN conference this year, we should have a, a poster up about this. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to spoil those results yet, but it, it's something that keeps me up at night. The, the question of how do we get someone fully recovered from an extreme diet when it comes to physiological variables, hormone levels, things of that nature, how can we get them there without really significant fat regain? I'm not sure if I have a good answer yet. I have some suspicions, but it's a work in progress. Yeah. I, for my personal anecdotal experiences, slow and steady and education, them understanding, yeah. I mean, just personal anecdote, um, going from extremes um, slow and steady coming out of it, them understanding exactly what's happening while it's happening, uh, and really controlling the factors and variables of movement. Um, yeah. and, and the awareness of all those things combining together. And, and maybe that's, uh, an oversimplification of it, um, for some individuals. Uh, but, uh, it, and, and of course I think that it should be noted how much, fat loss you're really talking about. And I think that there's something individuals listening to this, keeping in mind, some are thinking about a dress that they want to fit into at a reunion, whereas other individuals are thinking about contest dieting for stage. 
And I, I think they're very different worlds, obviously. Right. Now, Lee, a question we like to ask people, especially the more evidence-based kind of individuals that work with clients, is there anything that you do in your own training and nutrition or something that you have clients do that kind of goes against the grain in the evidence-based community? So basically, is there anything you do that there's not a substantial amount of evidence to support, but but you feel really strongly about it? Um, I, I think the, 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 I think the walking, uh, and in generally speaking, keeping low stress in general during a deficit period, uh, for physique, especially, uh, is, is kind of, cause a lot of the research I see people throw out is look at how much this, uh, high aerobic or cardiovascular, uh, training exercise led to greater results, et cetera. Um, I see, and I, I see a lot of people in the evidence-based industry trying to kind of ramp up fat loss with aggressive training. And I've always kind of been, I like to keep my aggressive training and my uh, really pushing the limits of what someone can do both in conditioning and muscle gain and composition changes. Uh, I really like to push that in maintenance or in, in a slight, you know, even surplus uh, of, of need. So um, I, I don't find a lot of people that support that. And a lot of the books that come out about, you know, metabolic excellence and, and efficiency and things like that, um, they, they don't really tout that as much. So I, I think that that goes against it. And, and I, and I do think that what we were just talking about in the aspect of kind of slow and steady with certain individuals of refeeding, I don't really know if it necessarily goes against anything, but I know that I'm railed up against it because oftentimes, you know, patience um and and to some degree what could we say a physical need to actually just feed and wanting to get back to a homeostasis as quickly as possible i don't i don't know how much of that is what can we feed really fast and uh, just make ourselves feel better versus easing ourselves up um and there's 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 really not a lot of literature in slow refeeding um there's there's a little bit of an, an anorexia uh uh and starvation studies, um, about that. But, um, even with that, they usually, even with the refeeding, they usually end up overfeeding, um, and going through periods of overfeeding phases, um, depending on just because someone is anorexia nervosia doesn't mean they necessarily wear low body weight as well. So that's, so trying to dive through and mix the, the research on that is, is really complicated. So yeah, long winded yeah. answer, but I would say kind of low grade intensity in training, um, during phases of fat loss and doing only what you have to do and maybe the kind of for certain individuals, slower refeeding. Um, but I will say that the majority of the time, what I say is just eat. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's just a small, very small subsection of it because the majority of people is like, Oh, just eat. Or some individuals is no, you don't need to even eat yet at all. <laughs> like keep going if you can. Yeah. Now, a while back, Greg and I kind of got together. We surveyed the landscape of the fitness industry and we had noticed that no one had made a podcast yet, so we made one. Um, oh, yeah. And I saw on your website that you also have a podcast in the works. So kind of a two-part question, why? And also, are you familiar with the term intellectual property? Sure. Well, I mean, so so honestly, what, what Eric is fishing for here is he's wondering if we were your main uh, inspiration or your only inspiration? Well, as as P 
Peter Cetera would say, you're the meaning in my life. Um, you're the inspiration. Um, and I think that that applies to both of you equally. Um, and I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, and I take Chicago and Peter Cetera very seriously. So um, there's that. And I, I really don't have any original ideas, guys. I don't have a mind of my own ultimately. And when I saw that you were doing a podcast, I had to Google what it was. Uh, even though I had done one years ago, that's not relevant, but um, I had to Google what it was and I had to figure out the ins and outs of it and stuff like that. And it just seemed really fascinating to me. So um, yeah, it, it's like radio, but there is no barrier to entry. It It's so groundbreaking. It's really what the internet's about, to be perfectly honest with you. So uh, what's I, your angle here? What, what's your, your podcast going to be about? Well, mine is, if I'm to be honest with you, so much more um, groundbreaking than yours is. Um, the, the premise of my podcast is I, uh, um, I had this joke and that came about with the whole, well, let me Google that for you. I don't know if anyone listening or you guys have ever seen, let me Google that for you, where you obnoxiously type something in to, to Google through this thing and send it to somebody. And it says, let me Google that for you. Uh, and there's also kind of a common dickish phrase as well. Uh, that's, uh, I'll just leave this right here. Um, and someone who's kind of smarmingly and obnoxiously trying to explain uh, what's right and how they're wrong, and they're just going to leave this right here for them to look at. And so the combination of those kinds of things festered and brewed in my brain, and I wanted the ability to to kind of not be hindered and talk on a lot of topics. So uh, I came up with the, the podcast, so I'll just leave this right here. And essentially it's going to try to be, try to be my tactful uh, and at times, you know, evidence-based opinions or thoughts on commonly uh, difficult and argumentative uh, topics. And sometimes it'd also be other people's answers. And my way of passing it around was if something comes up, uh, there'll also be an article form too. Um, I'll just put a little link and I'll just say, well, I'll just, I'll just leave this right here. So if someone's talking about X and, uh, and I happen to have talked about it, I'll just, I'll just leave it right there and, and, and leave it on someone's uh, link. And also everybody can just listen to it in general. But I was going to have guests uh, as well every once in a while to come on and they can leave something right there. And I just, I just thought it'd be fun. I thought it'd be fun and I thought it'd be something a little different. Um, and yeah, there will definitely be fitness and, uh, and uh, nutrition based conversations and stuff like that around things. But there'll also be other things like, uh, for example, my personal, and actually this is what I really should have said when you're talking about what I believe in that hasn't been proven, but um, my belief that people that don't return their shopping carts are, well, not good people. And, um, that they're also probably higher in BMI. I'm just throwing it out there. I am. Um, so, wow. uh, I'm, I'm trying to find funding for this research. Um, and careful. Cause there's a lot of like <laughs> social media sites that are cracking down on hate speech and you are getting very, very close. I know. Extremely I'm, close. I know I should probably, I should probably die it down and go, this is where, you know, this is, this is where the truth really comes out. And we've been talking for a bit and well, all of my barriers are down. So you're getting the real truth of me. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. but I, I have strong feelings about this and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just not. Well, I, you just you said I'm sorry. Well, I'm, so that, that well wasn't you know what? I I'm apparently <laughs> Canadian, so um, I've. She was apologizing for the fact that she's not going to apologize. Uh, I, I thought uh, I thought that was pretty obvious. It was a sorry, okay, not I, I sorry apologize. kind of thing. But you know, um, 
yeah. So that's 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 where the important research really is. Not not any of this. Um, yeah, that's where I'm going to put my real focus. Very cool. So aside from the podcast, is there anything else we should be keeping an eye out for in the near future? Um, generally speaking, I'm trying to be a, a better contributor again into the realm of articles and things being written. I, I'm I'm going to have so I read this thing uh, a, a series uh, on research or an article that I've read that I'm going to be putting up on my blog. Uh, not behind a paywall. Um, there'll be some behind a paywall for my members, but the majority of them will not be behind a paywall. Uh, and actually, and generally, trying to get myself <laughs> not behind a paywall so much so that that I can um, kind of be a better contributor in that regard. Uh, and so my, my website, uh, it's it, leapall.com, free stuff to see on my, my website. And uh, everything points there. And if, I, and if you can't find something that I'm supposed to do, that's my fault. So um, yeah, just that. And Can I'm, I make a suggestion when it comes to the paywall stuff? Yes, um, you actually a di- really a can. Different, <laughs> a different approach you could take that I've been using. So I've done a lot of academic research and I've worked out this cool scenario where I do the <laughs> I do all the work and it goes behind a paywall, but I don't make any money from it, oh. which is a very, very cool model that you might consider implementing if you just cr- made a paywall, but gave away all of the money. And sometimes you have to pay a few thousand dollars to have access to put your things wow. behind the paywall. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so it's a different model that kind of runs parallel to yours yeah. that you could consider. It's very cool, very legal. <laughs> <laughs> Inexplicably legal, to be honest. I'm I'm gonna really I'm gonna look into that. Thanks so much. I, it's something that all of the Harvard scientists are doing. Well, if they're doing it. All of your favorite people you've seen on the Dr. Oz show. I really love them. Actually, probably not many. I was about to say, (laughs) I don't don't know about that, to be honest. (laughs) All right. So we've got those things coming up on the horizon. Now, if people want to stay in touch with Lee and they want to see what you're up to and and connect with you, where can they find you on the internet? LeePill.com. My Facebook is LeePill. I really apparently love my name. Um, so it's just LeePill is everything. I will be doing some some speaking gigs. I'm going to be speaking at Evolve uh, um, uh, in Canada this uh, in September, and I'm going to be speaking in Seattle um, in August. So those those two things are coming up. So if you're in Seattle or you're in Edmonton um, during those times, love to see you. That'd be great. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I, trying to be low on the pluggy. I do have a book coming out, but it's not for a very very long time. So uh, that that can wait. But uh, uh, I hope that you enjoyed the things that you it, see on the site. It's never too early to rev <laughs> to rev up. Yeah, the yeah. Train. I'm I'm doing a I'm doing a an audible and major market uh, and Kindle release. Uh, so it's major major market release of Fat Loss Troubleshoot. Um, and oh, I've never done yeah. it before. Uh, I've always been uh, ebook based. So I'm really excited, and it's going to be in 2020. Uh, so, um, it's, it, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's, I, I feel it's the best stuff I've ever written. Um, so, uh, I'm, I, I can't wait till it's, till it's out there into the world. So I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. Congratulations. That, yeah, that's, that's super cool. C- congrats on getting that Thank deal. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really excited about it. We, we've got a thing on the podcast. If you hang on for like over an hour, we start to become sincere. So you finally <laughs> cracked into it. Well, then, then I feel, I feel really, uh, honestly, I feel touched and blessed by that because, uh, not, not to get too, to ask kissy, but, but really brilliant, both brilliant minds. And, uh, and I was, I'm not usually nervous or, uh, anticipatory 
that's word uh, before coming on these kinds of things. But I was, I was, I was little, I was little. I wanted to, I wanted to do justice because it's. I know it's going to be a great podcast. I know there's only been a few so far, but what I've heard is already great, and I know it's going to be great in the future. And to be a part of it, I'm, I'm actually really, um, I'm really happy to be a part of it. Well, now, now that you've come on, I hope you can see that there was nothing to be worried about because generally what ends up happening is that I wind up as the butt of all of the jokes. Yeah, he's kind of mean to you, Greg. He's a little... That's crazy. Well, he's a little mean to you. So I, I, I've I, learned my lesson because he's <laughs> the one that edits the audio. And so anytime I try to slip in a good joke where he's the butt of it, just cuts it out like a snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, he has the power, dude. Yeah, I'd, I'd really. Yeah, <laughs> if he's got an audio, total beta soy boy move. <laughs> oh, can't can't take the heat. That was no. I just when I say funny things, they're lighthearted. You practice hate speech, and I have to leave that on the cutting room floor <laughs> so that we don't get deplatformed. That's that's it's. I'm he's serving some good points. I'm gonna be honest, and you just called him a beta soy boy, so. Yeah, but I was being I was being sarcastic. Sure. It was all in good sure, fun. Sure, of course. Mm. Of course. Yes. Tell that to Zuckerberg when he uh, shuts <laughs> down our Facebook. Oh man. <laughs> all right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for coming on. Um we really enjoyed talking to you. We hope that maybe someday you'll consider our dinner invitation. Um <laughs> you can bring whoever you want. It's not like a super selective thing. Absolutely. But uh thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Really thank you. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.